For decades, the history of the DC Universe has been marked by its crisis-level events, status quo-altering storylines that have rewritten continuity while also providing a meta-commentary on DC Comics publishing itself, and all under a signature red glow. This is Red Skies, a 13-part podcast epic mining these events and the Superman of it all. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Red Skies, Chapter 12. And joining me to discuss Death Metal by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, as well as the second half of Scott Snyder's Justice League run, is the host of the Discovery Debrief and the Comic Binge Podcast's returning guest, Chris Clow. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to have you here for the penultimate installment of our big crisis event here. I poured myself a nice glass of bourbon, which I'm enjoying as we record. I debated whether or not to go with coffee or bourbon. Coffee, I feel like, would have been akin to crisis energy, would have gotten me you know, kind of <laughs> amped up. And I decided to go with anti-crisis energy in the form of bourbon to just kind of relax me as we make our way through this material. So hopefully I made the right choice. I think you did. And it, it aligns thematically with everything that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Yes. I will say at the outset, for anyone who listened to our Dark Knights metal episode, as well as anyone who's been following my social media posts as I've been making my way through what we're about to talk about, you might expect me to come in a little hot and a little a little hard on on death metal. And I'm happy to say, I'm happy to report, you know, this is always a journey and, and there are surprises and you never know where things are going to land. And I will say that I had, I guess, a more positive, I have a more positive outlook on this than I thought I was going to uh, when we were, you know, in the process of setting this up. And, and I'll talk about it. A lot of the issues that I had with metal are still present here. So <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> that's all still at play. But I think I came away from death metal with a much clearer sense of what Scott Snyder was trying to say through Dark Knight's metal and Dark Knight, Dark Knight's death metal and the Justice League run. And there's a lot about it that honestly, I, I just sort of have a fundamental disagreement with, but that's fine, right? We can kind of look at things in different ways, but having a clearer sense of really kind of what he was trying to get at helped a lot. So we'll, we'll get into all of this. Let me toss it to you first. A question that I've I've been asking a lot of the guests, just kind of uh, as a as a preliminary matter. Death metal, you know, if we even want to go back to metal itself, Snyder's Batman run. If we really want to kick it back, <laughs> the Justice League run, S Snyder's DC work as a whole. Sort of, what has your relationship been with it, and how, if at all, has it changed over the years? Well. Uh as you know, uh, one trait that we have in common is that we both have a history working uh, as comic book retailers. So the first time that I remember encountering Scott Snyder's name, period, was uh, when we got our copies in of American Vampire Number 1. That was the first time I saw his name on a book. I, I read a little bit more about him and uh, it sounds like he was something of a protege of Stephen King's. And I thought that that was interesting. I read American Vampire back when uh, this was pre, you know, well before black label stuff. And the books were still called Vertigo books. 
And I was very taken with how imaginative it was and how scary it was too. Like I was actually pretty surprised that, wow, I'm feeling a little bit of fear from this book. That's, that's fascinating to me. So a few months go by, or maybe it was a year goes by and they announced Snyder as the new ongoing writer for detective comics. And I remember thinking, wow, he's jumping to Batman really fast. Uh, of course, you know, the caveat being at that time that Dick uh, Grayson was leading detective comics and Bruce Wayne was not. So it was going to be a little bit of a different flavor. And then when that first issue of black mirror came out, I think it was detective number 870. Uh, I was shocked at how fun of a reading experience that was and how dangerous it felt because it didn't seem like there was an abundance of danger in that way to be found in a book led by Dick Grayson. So, uh, you know, Snyder actually was the writer who was able to finish out the original run of detective comics. And then shortly, uh, before the books launched is when we got a glimpse of what the new 52 was going to be. And Snyder jumping over to Bruce Wayne and with Batman number one seemed like a very natural fit. Uh, I read his Batman run from detective up through the new 52 stuff, uh, religiously. I was very taken with what he was doing, uh, up through about the first 20 issues, I think. And this is where, uh, I think a critical point comes into play, at least in my mind is that when you read the black mirror and you read stories like the court of owls, you get a sense that Snyder is going kind of one way as a writer, like he's going to be the guy who brings this visceral, emotional kind of quality. He's going to bring this horror quality to the kinds of stories that he's going to tell. And then there's kind of an about face with zero year, his very ambitious uh, sort of reshaping of Batman's origin story for the new 52 and full disclosure, my all-time favorite Batman story is probably year one. So when it became clear that Zero Year was going to supplant year one, I became very defensive about what Snyder's intentions were in reshaping Batman's origin story just because year one is a story that has so much uh, significance to me personally. Um, and one word that I think is going to come up over the course of this conversation, especially as it relates to the first metal, is ambition. Because I always appreciate creators who have ambition in their storytelling. Whether or not that ambition is met is a whole other issue. And I think with Zero Year, he bit off way more than he could chew. That story was all over the place. It was not a smooth reading experience. And reading it month to month was an exercise, at least for me, in frustration. Um, it went on for a very long time. Uh, and the entire DCU was sort of getting into it as well. And, and it was kind of hard for me to read that story because I, I just fundamentally had so many kind different kinds of issues with it. I actually revisited it recently. It's still not my favorite, but I think it does read a lot better in collected form. But Zero Year, I think, is where we first got the glimpse of the kind of storytelling that he, <clears throat> excuse me, that he would move into with metal. And uh, metal itself, you know, I remember I was part of a podcast at the time that book started and I was like, oh, it's going to be fun. It's a new DC event. Scott Snyder is kind of a guy who's uh, generally accessible in the kinds of stories that he he's going to put out. 
And then uh, I think it was either the casting or the forge. I think it was the casting was the first book. And I said, Hey guys, read the casting. Let's, let's get into this new DC crossover event. And they were totally lost. And I had to explain things going back to, uh, to the sixties and seventies in DC continuity that I did not think I would have to explain. Um, and then as metal went on, like, again, I appreciate the ambition. I was rather shocked at the kinds of, uh, stakes that Snyder was going to be putting into that story. Uh, but that story was what it was. And, um, and it, uh, told, or it gave us a glimpse at what Snyder was going to end up doing in justice league. Uh, then, you know, his justice league run, I actually fell off of about 20 issues in because personal things, I was moving across the country at the time and just kind of lost it. But, um, as I revisited those stories relatively recently in preparation for this show, uh, I feel like he refined the ambition a bit, but he didn't necessarily lose the scale. And when it comes to death metal, it is very much a more focused, refined, and I would argue more celebratory version of what we got in metal. I think that's all fair. And it's particularly great to get your insight on Snyder's Batman run. As I talked about when we covered Metal a couple of weeks ago, I only ever read the Court of Owls arc. I always intended to finish the run as one of those things that's always on that long-term to-do list. And I just never got to it. And I knew I had enough material to cover <laughs> for Metal and Death Metal that tacking on Snyder's Batman run was just not in the cards. But it, it's interesting to hear that for sure. Uh, and I will say, yeah, with Death Metal overall, I definitely found it to be more engaging and readable than Metal itself was for me. So one of the things that I guess, really the main thing that I took Snyder to task for when we covered Metal, and even in that episode though, I did recognize, and I will reiterate it here, that I think ultimately it's a matter of of preference or taste, right? It's, I don't even say this necessarily as as a criticism that Snyder did anything wrong. Like I recognize there are fans who probably ate all of this up. It just wasn't necessarily for me. And what I'm pointing to specifically is what I found to be exhaustive, tiresome, and just relentless world building, right? There was so much about the architecture of the cosmology of the DC multiverse, omniverse, as, as we ultimately get. And, we talked about it in metal as far as the, the world forge and the master forger and Barbatos and everything that we talked about, the dark multiverse, most of all. And, and that continues here, right? We get, we get more pieces of the puzzle in the sixth dimension arc of Snyder's justice league run. We learn that there is the sixth dimension that functions as the quote unquote control room right, of the multiverse and populated by Perpetua, right, who gave rise to the original multiverse that was founded using these dark forces, right? And she has her children, the monitor, the anti-monitor, and the forger, right? And they occupy this space in the control room. And eventually, uh, these sons of hers, primarily the monitor, right, realized that she had usurped her function, right, as one of the hands giving birth to the multiverse and conspire to overthrow her. And they called upon the source that is the power from which everything flows. And the source intervened in the form of this raptor 
that imprisoned Perpetua within the source wall and separated this multiverse from the other multiverses within the Omniverse and essentially discarded that original multiverse created by Perpetua and gave rise to the original multiverse that we came to know, I suppose, in pre-crisis continuity before that was undone. And there's, of course, more, more to unpack here, but that's just an example, right, of the continued architecture that gets built within these Snyder works, right? So as I am starting my reading of Sixth Dimension, right, the first part of my reading for this episode, I'm hitting all of this stuff that I just laid out here <laughs> and I am like banging my head against the wall. I'm like, it's just, it's just more of this. It's never ending. I will say that as we continue to move forward, I, I think we get to a certain point where the world building eases up a bit and that was, that was welcome for me. But like I was saying earlier, I think it became clear over the course of the rest of the run, and especially as we get into death metal, Snyder's whole thesis about how everyone and everything is connected and the importance of this long history that we generally, but specifically the characters within this, within this shared universe um, have all experienced together. And with that in mind, and especially after I finished all of the reading, and then I went back and I was kind of going through everything again, seeing how some of these pieces fit together in that sixth dimension arc in particular, when Clark is, uh, is, is trapped in that void and he's, he's removed from the sunlight and he's trapped and he's having these memories of John, his son, and Pa Kent, right? And this idea comes into play at, at this point as well, right, about how uh, again, this experience stretches across generations, right? This idea that anytime these heroes are battling, they're not just battling in that particular moment, right? It's a shared battle that they've all been waging across history. And this idea, idea of, of connectedness, right? Uh, that, that was one of the things that I bumped up against in the, in the prior episode. And I, I did continue to bump up against it here to be clear, but that was the thing. I felt like we were drawing these connection points between every aspect of the DC universe. And I felt like we were undermining the importance of mystery, of chance, of fate, right? And I, and I feel like at a certain point, it, it just, it's just sort of undermines uh, those other aspects to, to sort of over-explain or to draw all of these lines between things. But within the context of, I suppose, Snyder's larger point, I guess I got it. I don't necessarily disagree with it, and I'll continue to talk about that, but I, I guess that understanding at least allowed me to come to terms with the work more so here than I did last time. Yeah, you know, it's funny hearing you mention that because uh, the idea of over-explaining and over-building, especially when it comes to these extra cosmic components of the DC universe. Cause we're far beyond like even the new gods, right? We're talking about the entirety of the Omniverse and, uh, and the, like the creation of Perpetua and her role from the hands and all of these things. And it, I absolutely agree with you. The mystery has been taken away. What I, I guess I kind of gravitated toward was more a point of these stakes Great storytelling, I think, has identifiable stakes. It's arguably something that uh, 
afflict superhero media generally, but most especially movies these days, the stakes get so big and so unwieldy that it's very difficult to have a grasp of what really is being fought for. You know, it's not a problem that I felt with Final Crisis. I feel like Final Crisis, weirdly enough, is a smaller scale story than than the metal death metal saga is. And, you know, Sixth Dimension absolutely counts in that. Um, Justice Do More kind of flows in and out of it, but uh, but is still kind of a component of it and arguably a pretty important story to read headed into death metal. But yeah, the, the stakes combined with the world building, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about it in, in such terms, but hearing you say that makes it make complete sense. It's just like when you combine the, the over explanation of the cosmology with things that are just really difficult to grasp, especially in a story that at the end of the day is about being together uh, I just wonder if there might be a thematic mismatch with the the heavy work that's done in the plot, and uh, snipe. But but that's the thing too is that in Sixth Dimension, one of the things that I think you absolutely glimpse is Snyder's incredible strength when it comes to character moments and writing the characters specifically. When Superman looks back and says, "Hey, it's going to be okay," you believe it before he gets lost in that void and uh like the way that the heroes encounter this what they believe to be this future idyllic version of the dc universe like they all feel it in their cores like this is what it looks like when we win even batman gets to see what it looks like when he wins even if he understands what the cost is supposed to be uh in the moment before everything is actually revealed to him so it's one of those things where, you know, in Black Mirror and certainly in Court of Owls, the character work is so, so strong. And, and you know, Court of Owls, the stakes aren't nearly as high, but because the stakes are more closely aligned with the, uh, the intimacy, I guess, of the character work, it feels like it's much easier to connect to. But like you, as time goes on in Death Metal proper and even some of the ancillary material, it's a little easier to grasp. It doesn't necessarily lose the scale, but it does provide, I think at least readers more of a way in to understand exactly what he's trying to say. Yes. It, it's interesting because we were talking off mic about Grant Morrison and certainly we've covered a lot of Morrison on this show generally, and especially in the context of this red skies event. And we spent a lot of time on final crisis and I, I guess before before I go further, let me say I part of this cuts both ways because part of me says, hey, you, we don't need to discuss death metal by putting it up against these other works per se. But at the same time, I feel like that's not only fair, but it's it's natural and it's death metal kind of begs that in and of itself, right? It's a it's a crisis about being a crisis. So I feel like these comparisons are warranted. And I know one of the things we had messaged about was was Doomsday Clock. Now, I've already recorded that episode. People will have heard it by the time this comes out. And the way that Doomsday Clock and Death Metal circle each other, uh, I, I do want to touch on that because I have some feelings about that. And that was, you know, we, we, we spent a while talking about Doomsday Clock last week. And, you know, that was an instance where 
yes, we got into these larger questions about how the DC universe slash multiverse functions, but to me, it was grounded in a more emotional core that I feel like is often lost in these kind of stories. And this is sort of the tragedy of it. And I've gotten a sense, I think, you know, because again, we've had our metal episode out and I've, I've gotten feedback from listeners and I appreciate everyone who's, who's tuned in and has shared their take on all of this. And, you know, one of the things that's come, come up as I've traded comments and messages with people is like, yeah, there are some really cool ideas at play in these metal events. But I think when you combine the over-explaining and the world building with, again, those, these, these impossibly high stakes, right? It's, it's the nature of, of everything uh, at, at stake. And what's crazy is that it's sort of always the case when we're talking about a crisis event, but somehow as we get into the idea that our multiverse exists within a larger multiverse, a larger omniverse populated by other <laughs> multiverses, it's like it gets even bigger. And so I think with all of that, there are aspects that that get lost in the shuffle, but there are some really cool idea, ideas here. And when you do get moments like what you cited, right, as Superman accepts this challenge to go into the sixth dimension and, and see what they can learn there. And he turns back and he looks at everyone. He's like, hey, it's going to be okay. That image, I've seen that <laughs> circulated on social media so many times and I never knew what it was from. And so as I was reading this, I came to it and I was like, ah, finally, mystery solved here. But uh, I, I guess two two other things by way of of setup, I suppose. So one is just in terms of audience feedback, I've gotten the sense just from hearing from our, our Digging for Kryptonite audience. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to cast a wide net and, and say this is all comics fans, but I, I think particularly people who are following this show and, and who are Superman fans, I've gotten the sense that with these metal events, a lot of folks either really not on board with them or didn't read them. So as we're going through all of this, and I, again, I know there are exceptions and it, it's a mix of people who are listening, but at least from what I've been hearing from people, I feel like we're, I, an audience, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we're largely talking to folks who, who again, yeah, maybe not, might not have been totally on board with this or might've skipped it all together. I mean, when we look at these crisis events, most of them until this point have been pretty Superman centric, right? I mean, my infinite crisis and final crisis, but most of all, uh, and then as we get into these, these meta and doomsday clock, certainly. And then, but as we get into these metal events, Superman of course has his part to play. And there are some particular instances that I definitely want to talk about. And we've already cited one with the, Hey, it's going to be okay. But these aren't, these aren't Superman stories the way I would consider, and I do consider Doomsday Clock to be a, a Superman story. Uh, so again, as, as we're as we're kind of talking about this to people and explaining this to people, <laughs> I, I want to make sure I keep that in mind. Uh, and, and this is where it's a fine line because if we were to do a, uh, you know, beat by beat plot breakdown, we would be here for, I mean, our episodes are long to begin with. We would be here forever. So I would be here until the, the red sun <laughs> comes around that actually envelops the darkest night. If, if we did that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I won't do that, but I do want to give people, uh, you know, again, an overview of some context for, for what we're talking about. And I'm actually going to, I'm going to, to seed the floor to our pal, Superboy prime. Um, so there's a special, uh, that's part of the dark, the death metal event called uh, called uh, Secret Origin, and it's co-written by Jeff Johns and Scott Snyder. You know, a rare collab of a, between the two of them. Uh, I, I can't think of many, if, if any others. So I think it was kind of a big moment for the two of them to 
uh, to write this together. And this is, we're deep into the story now. We're towards the end of Death Metal here. But Superboy Prime says, some lame Batman wannabe is doing what a bunch of other villains have already tried to do for some reason, remake the entire multiverse in their vision. I feel like I've already read this story, but I understood it better. Everything in the universe is turned upside down and jumbled like a greatest and worst hits album. I can't figure out what's going on. And the worst part about it all is, I don't care anymore. Now, of course, we're not going to leave it at that. That would be doing this work a disservice if that's the only description we gave of this story. And we've grown accustomed now to the use of Superboy Prime as the stand-in for the fanboy who's outraged at what's going on in the pages of the comics, this real meta commentary. At the same time, though, <laughs> it's like... What what do you what do you make of that? What do you make of that? Because on the one hand, it's like, oh, we're kind of taking the piss out of what people's complaints might be about this. But part of me says, oh, it's a little bit too on the money here. How, how do you feel about it? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that issue up and that moment specifically up just because, uh, you know, Superboy Prime first appears when the heroes are going back to the uh, worlds in the multiverse where those crises events are happening in perpetuity uh, to try and, and find a way to redirect the crisis energy to the Mobius chair. A lot of words that I just said right there. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking in the moment, this doesn't sound like Superboy Prime. There's just there's there's some there's a disconnect here because I love Infinite Crisis a lot. Uh, that was that was probably the story that defined my DC reading. It came at a at a critical sort of embryonic stage of my comic book fandom as I understand it today. So Superboy Prime holds a lot of real estate in my head when it comes to crisis villains in particular. And of course, you know his role in the Sinestro Corps War up through even you know the stuff that was included in Blackest Night. So seeing Superboy Prime again was a thrill, but he didn't feel very authentic. And then this issue comes along. And the voice is just pitch perfect for everything that we understand. And John's is really a creator, I think, that played with the meta commentary and kind of established what a meta commentary is in a crisis event looks like and how it can invoke the feelings of a, of a wide swath, maybe not the widest swath, but a wide swath of the readership to use that to tell a, a component of the story. And when I read that, I could not help but just laugh out loud, first of all, at how truthful it felt, but also uh, it, it just it seemed like such a treat to be reading that story specifically as someone who has been so invested in Superboy Prime uh, and, and in a way that sort of brings his story full circle uh, in uh, such a familiar way. But yeah, I mean, what's, what's that other meme? No lies detected. I mean, that, that's kind of how I do feel about it, but you also have to keep in mind, and I, I know you keep this in mind, but people reading that story definitely need to keep in mind that Superboy prime is not necessarily the most reliable narrator either. Uh, he is an extraordinarily jaded kid who has power that arguably he doesn't deserve, at least for most of the time that we see him. And, uh, and even 
when you read that issue, he overhears everybody muttering under their breath. He's poison. I don't want to get near him. He's, he's just terrible. And you can see the, the, the way that Francis Manipole and Ivan Reese, I think also had a, had a hand in that issue, the way they drew his face just hardened and resigned at the same time. Like it was a very rewarding element to this entire experience. And I'm so glad that it's included here, even though all things considered, it's not a super important part of the story, but for those of us that have been around and have been reading these crises, maybe since infinite crisis, that is something that I think adds some additional legitimacy to the historical components of it. Uh, Cause infinite crisis now is getting close to 20 years old and which is wild to think about, but and, and you know, sorry, it, it dates both you and I, I think a little bit, but, uh, that, that issue really does sort of exemplify how far back this story, uh, wants to go in terms of bringing the, the thematic aims of every crisis we've seen up to this point to something of a satisfying conclusion and reading that issue. That's what started to started to make me realize that, you know, obviously we're going to have crossover events in the future. I don't know how they could possibly get bigger than this famous last words, but I, I just, I can't fathom it at this point. I couldn't fathom this one too, to be fair, but, um, bring that in. And I think bringing John's authoritative voice for Superboy prime in also helped to telegraph before the finale that this is going to be something of a conclusion for every crisis we've encountered up to this point. And I was already more on board with it before reading secret origin. But after that point specifically, that's when I started to feel like, yeah, this is, this is a real end and maybe that's okay. I'm glad you bring that up. So we will continue to unpack this next week when we cover dark crisis on infinite earths. But a couple of things on that note, as you read this, even putting aside the, the mechanics of where we end up, it, it, it does feel like it's so, instead of saying exhausting, I'll say it's so exhaustive and it's so comprehensive, right? And again, the stakes are so high and it reveals, it shines a light on every, seemingly every conceivable inner working of how our universe, the DC universe, fits within its multiverse, which fits within the larger omniverse, right? And so it does sort of leave you with the sense of, okay, you know, we've we've done it. We've done it. Uh, and then moving more into the mechanics of it, and I'm skipping ahead to the very end here, but we end up with this, and I believe the quote is, an infinite web of multiverses, right? And now the 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 barriers have been shattered and we have this infinite frontier right which was the publishing initiative and the name of a, a mini series that followed uh death metal so this idea that everything has been restored and the characters memories and experiences of all of the versions we've seen of them within the core DC universe even as that DC universe has changed all of that has been reinstated right it really feels like okay we've done it and yet this death metal was 2020 to the beginning of 2021, I believe. And then very shortly thereafter, we had dark crisis on infinite earths and I'm going to do my full homework, uh, very shortly, but I have, I have 
dabbled a little bit. I've, I've perused Dark Crisis. And my understanding is, uh, in, in addition to sh- kind of showing how the younger, you know, the next generation of the DC universe rises up, right, which seems to be the heart of it. But as far as the crisis piece of it, we have Pariah coming back. And ultimately bringing about the restoration of of his multiverse of infinite Earths. And, I mean, <laughs> I'm heading into that episode. I'm, <laughs> I'm already at a deficit here. It's at a deficit in my book. Because I'm like, what was the point of having <laughs> this infinite web of multiverses if if we have to have this event a year later? I mean, and that's not a fa- I mean, that's not a criticism of death metal, but I guess if we're kind of looking at the larger kind of publishing initiatives and aims of DC Comics, it's like, what what are we doing here? Yeah, you know, I wonder if there were people that maybe were counting on people. Or I wonder if if DC itself was maybe counting on the idea of people jumping off when death metal was finished, because for all intents and purposes. The end of death metal is the end of Scott Snyder's major involvement in the DC universe. And it's conceivable that some people are going to step away, at least from like the event side of DC comics with his exit. But um, no, I mean, I'm with you. I remember kind of chafing at when it became clear that dark crisis was actually crisis on infinite earths and full disclosure. I have not read the story, although I plan to pretty shortly and I have more motivation to now after finishing death metal. Um, they called it the like the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I was like, I remember reading something like that in 2005 that claimed the same thing that was a 20-year anniversary celebration of Crisis on Infinite Earths and brought back the characters that original story ended with to try and, and push things into, into a new tomorrow, which had quite a lot of gas in front of it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I do remember just thinking that this event that first of all, yes, it's arriving so soon after, after death metal, but also, uh, is this supposed to be something of a new beginning in the sense that they're trying to bring a different segment of readers on board? And, you know, legacy, I think is one of the strongest elements of the DC comics universe, especially in comparison to Marvel. Marvel's only really just now over the past decade or so getting into, the legacy kind of game, you know, especially with Miles Morales and with Sam Wilson as Captain America and and great additions to those mantles, of course, but they're only just now doing that. And legacy has been such a critical component of DC comics identity for, for decades. I mean, I know people who still believe that Kyle Rayner is the green lantern. Connor Hawk is the green arrow. A lot of people believe Wally West is the Flash, right? And, uh, and, and you know, Nightwing is not to be trifled with. People wanted to burn Dan DiDio's name in effigy when there was a rumor that came out that said he wanted to kill Dick Grayson in Infinite Crisis. And um, so by bringing in these other newer legacy characters with Infinite Frontier and pushing into Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, are they trying to say that we are now committed to a new form of storytelling that maybe some older fans don't like? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it, I, I feel like that's something that someone could conclude by looking at the, the way that the line is set up. Um, and, you know, what I have read of those legacy stories with these newer characters, especially 
uh, Wonder Woman and John Kent to Superman and and uh, the new Batman when they did the uh, Future State. Uh, a lot of those have a lot of potential, and I'm I'm really interested to see where things go in the future. But uh, did they see death metal as like a breakoff point? I don't think we'll ever really know the answer to a question like that, but I can't help but think maybe it's possible. We are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw yeah. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Maybe, maybe. And, you know, you mentioned Infinite Crisis. So this kind of leads me to the next big ticket item that I wanted to bring up here. And and again, just by way of, again, for our audience who's like, what the hell is Death Metal about? So, you know, yeah. essentially, and this is continuing from from Dark Knight's Metal, which introduced, again, this whole concept of the dark multiverse and the Batman who laughs and 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 all that business that we already talked about. We already did two hours on that, so <laughs> go back and listen to that. But, uh, you know, essentially here, uh, you have uh, Perpetua and her acolyte, Lex Luthor, who becomes Apex Predator. We have to talk about this. I have very strong feelings on that. Apex Lex, yeah. And yeah, oh, God. Um, but essentially, they are trying to... Uh, essentially sway the nature of this world towards doom, which will unlock the uh, seventh and final dark force uh, that powers Perpetua, in this case, faithlessness, right? And when the universe turns towards doom, she will rise and her powers will be unlocked. And by the time we get to the end of Snyder's Justice League run, that's what happens, right? Perpetua has risen and her powers are, are realized and the Justice League, and I know I'm, I'm skipping and we'll go back to anything that we want to talk about, but just to sort of lay this out for people. And it ends with the Justice League kind of, you know, raging into battle here with Perpetua, which then happens off panel, which, man, if there was ever a choice, if there was ever a choice, oh, like, yeah. that's a choice. That's such a choice to be like, I've done a, I've done the <laughs> metal event <clears throat> and a 39 issue Justice League run. That's all about first the totality and then we find out it houses Perpetua and she created this original multiverse and she's rising and she wants to remake the universe in her image. All of this, right? She In the prior multiverse, she combined humans and Martians to form these apex predators. <laughs> and it's like we're ending with them racing into battle here and it's like, well, you're not going to see it. 
you'll see the aftermath the aftermath of it in death metal where the justice league has lost the justice league has lost and perpetua now is in the process of of remaking the multiverse to what she wants it to be but she's challenged by her other acolyte the batman who laughs who takes on yet another form as the darkest knight when via a brain transplant <laughs> 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 he inhabits the body of a Bruce Wayne from another dark multiverse world who had become the equivalent of Dr. Manhattan. For anyone who hasn't read this and you're hearing us talk about it, you must be like, I don't know what you think. <laughs> what the hell are these guys talking about? But yes, the Batman who laughs takes on this final form as the darkest night. And the way that it is achieved is that his his underlings transplant his brain after Wonder Woman kills him and they place it in the body of another Bruce Wayne from the multiverse who had acquired the equivalent of the powers of Dr. Manhattan. And this allows the Batman who laughs to take on this final form as the darkest knight who rises to challenge Perpetua, right? To remake the universe in his own image. And so uh, our heroes have to try to defeat them and the, the further piece of architecture that we get here, we had learned about the seven forces, the positive forces and then the dark forces that, uh, that, are, that are at play in the, in the universe here, just as an example, the speed force versus the still force, right? And Perpetua, when she created the multiverse initially, she based it on those dark forces, and that's what she's trying to bring back. And when the multiverse had been remade, right, they, it was built on these positive forces, uh, and, <laughs> and I've lost my train of thought. Where am I going with that? <laughs> no, look, you you are actually parsing it out in a way that I think is as clearly understandable as possible for people who've never touched this story. So kudos to you. And what we thank you. And what we find out is that those uh, forces, the positive and the dark forces, they all revolve around two poles. <laughs> Uh, so there's there's connective energy, right, which later comes to be known as anti-crisis energy, and that's the energy that that pertains to this sense of of connectedness that we're talking about. That's not focused on the individual and the moment, but rather everyone together and this larger shared history. the The crisis energy, right? That's all about the individual, the selfish pursuits, the selfish need. Uh, and, and, and so that's, so we have the, the, the connective energy and the crisis energy. And uh, again, you had mentioned this earlier, uh, as we get deeper into death metal, we have our heroes venture into the dark multiverse where prior crises are still occurring. As long as people remember them, they're still happening in the dark multiverse. Which begs a question, because especially with Crisis on Infinite Earths, it's like they don't remember it. So how is this still happening? They like they only seem to remember a very vague notion of it. But I whatever. Uh, and so so that becomes a big part of it, right? Where they where they try to go to the where they do go to the dark multiverse, and the idea is to try to use this crisis energy to stop these opponents and to restart the universe. So again, that's I think overall, I think a pretty good <laughs> pretty good <laughs> overview of. Of, yeah. you know, kind of uh, what's what's at play here. So we'll get 
back to all of that. But um, what I wanted to get to was, especially talking about Final Crisis or Infinite Crisis, rather, one of the things that's come up on the podcast, and I will forever say this, and I think you, you, would, you would probably agree as a fellow fan of that era, was that I think from an editorial perspective and due to the collaboration of the writers of the DC universe at the time, and especially the quartet who would go on to do 52, there was such a level of coordination. And, mm. you know, whether you liked it or didn't, and I know we did, and I think generally it was well-received. It's like, it really felt like for a good period of time from Identity Crisis through 52 and even Final Crisis, I would argue, it really felt like, okay, we're kind of on a path here and everybody feels like they're on the same page. This era feels very different. Uh, yes. It feels like we have Jeff Johns and we have Brian Michael Bendis and we have Scott Snyder and everybody's kind of doing their own thing here <laughs> as far as charting the future of the DC universe and explaining how the DC universe works and trying to to glean some kind of sense of how Doomsday Clock and Death Metal fit together is a question that I will now pose to you. What is your understanding of, of that? Oh, boy. <laughs> that's the, uh, I honestly don't know if that's a question that has an answer to it, you know, because the stories exist in such isolation from each other that it's kind of difficult to, to parse. I mean, Doomsday Clock ended with so many potential paths forward, uh, you know, even a potential crossover with Marvel at some point in the future, like he put a seed in there. So if it ever happens, uh, then Jeff Johns and Gary Frank can take credit for it. But um, I don't know. I mean, the, the aims of the stories, I think, really provide a dividing line because Doomsday Clock... I would argue there is a, uh, a higher degree of enjoyment for that story if you are a, a, a pretty big fan of Superman. It is a pie-in to Superman at the end of the day. That's one of the reasons that I love it so much. So many people were focused on it's a Watchmen sequel. How can it possibly be a good thing or a good contribution? But it uses Watchmen to tell us a story about Superman. So that's one of the reasons I love it as much as I do. Um. And then with death metal, it seeks to be such a comment on the nature of crisis storytelling itself and uh, a desire, I think, that a lot of fans have had to knock barriers down, not to get too far ahead, but I mean, that's ultimately what one of the, the primary results is, that uh, it's very difficult to, to compare them, especially considering that leading into Infinite Frontier, uh, there doesn't seem to be much retention of a lot of the things that ended doomsday clock. At least that's my perception. Um, so I think it's best, uh, you know, if you want to head cannon it, you can, and there's enough connective tissue between the two stories just by the inclusion of a form of Dr. Manhattan. But uh, the aims of the stories are so very different. I mean, coming out of rebirth and all of the stories like in the, in the wider DC universe that fed into doomsday clock, it was basically a reconciliation for the new 52 and death metal. Like everything that the story seems to want to do is like, all right, we'll do that. But more, we're going to reconcile everything you've ever seen with these characters 
to try and push toward a brand new beginning. So this is a total reset. It's almost like uh, the creative team and Snyder in particular, and I'm sure some of his most direct collaborators were trying to say, look, let's build this in so that this is the biggest possible reset that the DC universe can do now and maybe can ever do. Because if you're saying this is a whole new beginning, then conceivably every slate going forward is going to have to start here. And Doomsday Clock wasn't necessarily interested in doing that. It was interested in uh, in, in reconciling stories and characters, frankly, that had been lost in the New 52 era while building around the history and idea, really, of Superman. So it's hard for me to connect the two, frankly. Like, I guess you can do it in a headcanon sense just by saying that... Uh, Dr. Manhattan is not the, uh, the final authority on power in this shared universe. Instead, now it has to be uh, the hands and descended from that. It has to be Perpetua. But uh, the, the mechanics still, like, when you're reading the story, I think it's easy enough to understand them. But I actually found Multiversity a far easier reading experience. Maybe it's because there's less material overall. Um, but Grant Morrison generally had a pretty straight and narrow idea of the kinds of stories that he wanted to tell by bringing in all of these other kinds of, of uh, mechanical components of the multiverse as Morrison saw it. But uh, here, it's just like, let's go big, let's go big, let's go big. And then we'll shrink it down. And those other stories weren't really interested in doing that. They were a little more character focused. Even Multiversity, uh, which is huge canvas of storytelling. But again, you know, we're going back to the idea of plot versus character. And the plot just kind of gobbles the character of the metal storytelling. Even though, like I said at the top, uh, it's, an, it's a more streamlined read here than it was in Metal. I said a lot of things. It's like a word salad. Like I feel like it's hard to avoid when it comes to talking. <laughs> I know. And so it's funny. So uh, due to our time difference, so we're recording this uh, and it's probably pushing midnight uh, my time. Uh, I've had my glass of bourbon here. I've been reading crises for the past three months. So I feel like a little punchy at this moment. <laughs> like I hope this all makes sense to people uh, and, or at least that they're having some fun with this, but I know that, you know, not to, it's funny because we're talking about this, death metal event that is this very meta commentary on the kind of event that it is. Um, similarly here, like I'll talk about talking about this for a moment because I think one of the things that's, that's challenging about this, like when we did doomsday clock last week, you know, a few minutes in, man, I was tearing up talking about uh, Dr. Manhattan's whole uh, thesis about uh, the rocket arrives or a rocket arrives. The child is loved. Superman is made right. Like that idea. And I'm tearing up as I'm talking about it. Um, here, I, I feel like the moments like those are, are essentially non-existent for me or, you know, if, you know, few and, and, and far between, if any. And that's the thing that I think makes it a little hard to talk about these metal events is that they are so plot heavy. And I don't, I don't necessarily enjoy sitting here for the amount of time that we do and just sort of saying this happens and then this happens and then this happens. Like it's more interesting when we can talk about what it means, right. Or how it resonates with us, but they are so mechanical right in terms of what they're 
what they're explaining, what they're setting up, that I, I think it, it does kind of pose a little bit of a challenge. Side note, so I don't think we said this in the metal episode, but I know that I, I think it was Snyder. There was some there was some desire from someone at some point to call uh, at least one of these metal events Dark Crisis, right? And then, but that didn't move forward, right? And of course, that title would then be used by the Josh Williamson <laughs> story that we'll talk about next week. So it's weird because with metal and death metal, we're talking about two events that don't have crisis in the title, but yo, they crisis harder than just about anything else that we've talked about or will talk about. Um, And it's kind of heartbreaking to me that it doesn't have crisis in the title for that reason. And I also feel like because they talk so much about being a crisis, it should have been called meta crisis. And you could have done a whole, listen, man, you could have done this whole thing where you have metal crisis in 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 your logo and then the L is like hanging off it would have been, oh man, it would have been perfect, right? Because you think, all right, metal, metal crisis, but no, it's a meta crisis. It's a crisis about being a crisis and crisis energy and anti-crisis energies, all this stuff going on. That's what this should have been called. This should have been called meta crisis with the L hanging off there. No, hey, I think that that's a, that's a great idea. They should, uh, I mean, look, they, they retitled Dark Crisis to Dark Crisis <laughs> on Infinite Earths in the middle of the run. It's not too late, really. It's never too late. Although you never know. I mean, uh, if Snyder and Capullo end up coming back to do a follow-up to this, I mean, look, I, I kind of hope it doesn't happen because – like I, I can't imagine how you must feel, especially considering our time difference and all of the other crises events that you have read, but I'm tired after reading this, you know, and it's not a bad tired, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to try and, and throw shade on it because I feel like that's easy to glean from some of the things that we're talking about. I think we both came away generally enjoying the story, especially with the feeling that it is designed to leave us with you know, a sense of possibility and a sense of connectedness. My understanding is that the theme of connectedness and certainly the theme of truth is a critical component to what the story is trying to say, especially coming out of the shared collective trauma that the entire world went through during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, or at least the darkest days of it. Um, there was... And and honestly, there still continues to be a, a, a deficit of connection between people. You know, we all saw those stories that emerged after, you know, people started getting on airplanes again of these terrible behaviors that people would would have. And, and uh, you know, this sense of trust that we've lost in, in our shared institutions and all of these things. I do feel like d- death metal has something to say about all of that, even though it was a story that was kind of coming out in the middle of it. It is difficult to parse those themes outside of the absorption of the end, but you need to read everything to get to the end and to fully grasp what it is doing. But I do feel like it's quite possible that a lot of people might've jumped off before that point because of the density of the plot. I know. I definitely, I definitely could see that happening. Uh, You know, again, there's a lot of talk of, of how Snyder is so clearly inspired by Morrison. And uh, when I talked about this last time, and I don't say this to be mean, but with, with Morrison, and I think anyone who's read Morrison knows exactly what I'm talking about, where sometimes you read a Morrison story and you're like, "What? I don't know exactly what happened or what it means. And 
sometimes that that can be a put off, right? And there might I know there are people who have read Final Crisis, for example. Like I don't know what this is, and they you know kind of cast it aside. I've been in that category, so I I know. Sure. But if you spend the time with it, right? I think it ultimately proves rewarding. And you say, okay, I I get kind of what's going on, but I and I get what this is trying to say. With with Snyder again, there's an element of that at play, and I don't say this to be mean, but I I also feel like it. I don't and again, audience, correct me if you feel otherwise. I don't think any of the metal stuff is hard to understand or follow. It's just that there's so much of it. I, you know, and and I think that's an important point to make because with with Morrison, it's like okay, with Final Crisis, what took me, I'll just use myself as an example, like what took me a little while to really kind of get a good handle on, right? Especially when we get into the Superman beyond of that story is this whole idea of, you know, kind of the overvoid, uh, you know, being this metaphor for the blank page of a comic book and this idea that like someone's drawing on the page and there's a reaction to it, right? And what that means for us as readers and what that means in the context of the story, right? So that's the sort of thing that I'm kind of pointing to. Whereas here, Again, I think it's just, there's just a lot, like there's just a lot going on here. I remember going back to Sixth Dimension, we talked about kind of the control room and all of that. I remember when we get to, what we ultimately find out is that the future version of Superman who's at play in that story is actually the world forger in disguise. And he's he's hatched this whole plot, right? He wants to stop Perpetua. His idea is to essentially supplant our our universe with one that he's created here. And he has, uh, he's utilizing Mixia Spitalik. I actually just got a Mixia Spitalik pop uh, and it's, you can't really see it, but it's on the shelf behind me here. But uh, to essentially un- unmake the world. And then uh, when that has, uh, I don't know, a- a- achieved a certain completion status, uh, the world forger will smash his hammer on his crisis anvil. And that will allow this new universe that he's created to to descend and to take the place. And I remember just getting to to Crisis Anvil, and I was like, "God damn it, man! Like, enough! It's like enough! It's enough!" Uh, but anyway, so that that's one piece of it. But going back to again, kind of this uh, coordination, editorial clarity, and planning, uh, and the Doomsday Clock of it all. So I have, I guess, like some competing thoughts. I suppose where there's the there's the more practical and then there's the more thematic and, and big picture. So as far as the practical, and and look, w- whether I like it or not, I, I will give Snyder props for at least trying to address Doomsday Clock because he could have not, he could have just ignored it completely, right? But he actually did make a couple of attempts. Now, I, I guess I'm kind of annoyed at, at the way it played out because I, I really did enjoy Doomsday Clock and I found it emotionally resonant and I, I got something out of it. But he could have skipped it entirely and he didn't, so hats off. But so at the very end of uh, his Justice League run where, again, Perpetua has has turned everyone towards Doom, our heroes have lost. They've lost. And they've been summoned by the quintessence and uh, they're sort of laying out the state of things. And one of the things that the quintessence says is that events that unfolded outside your purview, some disconnected from your reality altogether, but still deeply felt and impactful. And the image that accompanies that caption is the thunderbolt passing through Black Adam, which we see in Doomsday Clock. 
So events that unfolded outside your purview <laughs> that affected your, they're disconnected from your reality, but still felt and impactful. So I feel like that's a, a pretty clear statement that what we were seeing in Doomsday Clock was kind of its own thing. And, you know, this came up when I, last week when I was talking with Tyler from Krypton Report all about Doomsday Clock and, and he in particular was like, yeah, like, how does this fit in and what does it mean and this and that? And, uh, you know, we, we do get somewhat of an answer here. And then, so that's number one. And then this pissed, this, this one pissed me off. I'm sorry. When we get to death metal, <clears throat> again, at this point, earth is a hellscape. Uh, the, the Batman who laughs, who's on his way to becoming the darkest night. He has usurped apex Lex as the right hand man. And of course he has his own designs, but essentially he's brought the forces of the dark multiverse to bear in the, in the main DC universe. And, uh, Wonder Woman is like queen of hell, essentially. <laughs> she's on the mascara and she's forced to run this prison. And one of the new prisoners is Wally West, who I'm not doing that episode. That's a whole other episode about his journey <laughs> post rebirth. But essentially the short version is that in that flash forward miniseries, uh, he sat on Mo uh, Metron's Mobius chair, which had been imbued with the powers of Dr. Manhattan. And he achieved this sort of cosmic status and cosmic awareness. And so he's kind of expl <laughs> I should I should do like a supercut of uh, of, uh, <laughs> of these breaks because I'm just like I, I it's so much. Yeah. But so there's this double page spread of Wally explaining the nature of crisis <laughs> to Diana. And uh, one of the things that comes up in this is Wally says, not long ago, a being from another reality, brimming with connective energy, Dr. Manhattan tried to mend the fractures in our multiverse to heal the scars of former crises. Now, is that your understanding of what Dr. Manhattan was doing in Doomsday Clock? No, no, it's not. He was and, changing you know, things out of cold curiosity. Cold curiosity. This guy showed up and he was like, oh, it's weird that Superman arrived in 1938 and 1956 and 1986 and 2006. And every time Superman's timeline shifts, the whole universe shifts with him. What is that about? Well, I'm going to move this lantern and see what happens. Like, that's what that was. And it's, the, and it's important because he comes to this world with that coldness and that detachment. And he is ultimately inspired by Superman. Yes. He is inspired by Superman. He sees the face of the man of tomorrow and he is inspired and it's beautiful and he fixes things, right? And we reconcile the new 52 with the with the rebirth content, all that, all that mechanical business, but right? He's inspired, like it's important. But here apparently he was just changing. He was trying to help. Wasn't that clear? But there was, yes. And there was an emotional core to it, right? Because if anyone has any affection for Superman, then yes, the mechanical stuff is accomplished, but it's accomplished through an emotional road. It's accomplished through, to take another phrase from Jeff Jones, an emotional tether that people have for Superman and his foundational importance to superhero storytelling itself. That's what Doomsday Clock was trying to be about, and I feel largely succeeded at being about, uh, in addition to a statement about the strength of the Superman character, it was also a statement about overcoming 
a, cl- a sort of clinical cynicism that I think is easy for a lot of people to fall into. You know, there was an emotional through line that I think was far easier to detect in death metal. The emotional components of the storytelling, at least in my estimation, are moment to moment uh, and don't necessarily coalesce together until you reach or maybe even arguably they just don't coalesce. There's a bigger emotional moment that is waiting for you at the end. But, you know, it's a cumulative story. You have to read everything in order to get to that point specifically in order to go on the journey that the creators intend us to go on and to leave us with effectively. So, yeah, I mean, losing the emotional through line, I think is, it it highlights the core fundamental differences in the kind of storytelling at play. And also too, you know, this is more of a, 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 I guess a mechanical component of the, the reading experience, but there is so much ancillary material that you don't necessarily need. And I mean, even compared with let's, let's go back to final crisis, the ancillary material in final crisis, while the main series was coming out was restricted to, you know, I think two or three other writers, you know, the, the revelation series was written by Greg Rucka. John's was do it. He did rage of the red lanterns, although those tangentially related to final crisis, but he also did legion of three worlds that has more of a tie to Superman beyond, but it was mostly just a continuation of things that John's himself had been doing. Uh, rogues revenge was also John's and that since that was tied into flash, that was pretty important to final crisis overall, but all the important extra material was written by Morrison. And to your earlier point, the consistency, uh, all combines into something that is easy to read so much so that I think the essential edition that you read and the absolute edition that I have includes all of the stuff written specifically by Morrison and it makes for a more complete reading experience. The ancillary stuff in death metal, uh, you know, Snyder does have a, a pretty important part to play in a decent amount of it, but the volume, uh, does not have a lot to do with the core story that he is telling. Uh, and like even some of the stuff that is that, that Snyder is involved in doesn't have a lot of essential components to the narrative. And it just makes it far more unwieldy. I would like as a retailer, when final crisis was coming out, I, you know, I had to do a lot to try and keep people subscribed to it, but also just to, to, earnestly walk people through who really did want to keep up with things because it was kind of hard for some readers to keep up with. And I empathize with that and, and tried to show them a path. And, and with death metal, if I was working as a retailer during that event, it, it's, it's messiness is akin to what you regularly see from the X-Men. You know, it's, it's not a smooth process to try and bring people along for that ride. And I feel like it didn't need to be so sprawling. And I mean, it's true of metal as well. But uh, with this, I mean, I feel like there could have been a lot more focus than we ended up getting. Listen, I agree wholeheartedly. And I was going to save this for next week, but I'll, I'll say it now. I mean, I think in my heart, after rereading and reading everything for this event, in my heart, Infinite Crisis remains number one for the personal attachment that I have, but also now giving it a fair shake 
with the benefit of so many years and it it held up amazingly uh, at the same time again though it does it flows so much from everything that had been set up and that again that, I think that cuts both ways for I think largely especially if you're following all of it it's a huge positive and it was such an exciting time when all of that was coming out I think it might make it a little bit harder to give to someone cold right if you haven't had a lot of the background whereas part of me and maybe I will save my final my final superlatives for next week. But part of me feels like Final Crisis might be might be the perfect crisis or the best crisis. And and in part I say that because I genuinely do think, as much as within the pages of that essential edition that you're reading, you have to work with it. But it's not that you have to know everything that's going on around you in the DC universe. And whether or not that's a positive, people's mileage may vary, right? Because part part of the fun of a crisis is, you know, can be, can be. <laughs> it's not always, but it can be the tie-ins. It can be the lead up to it, right? So if you like that, then I think probably Infinite Crisis is, is number one. But if you want something where you can just give someone like one thing and say, hey, you're gonna spend some time with this, but this is gonna give you a pretty a pretty amazing statement on on the DC universe and these characters and what they mean and what they can do. It might be Final Crisis, whereas again, yeah, I agree with I agree totally with you with uh, Death Metal. Um, I read a lot of the tie-ins, so if you go on the DC app, and that's how I read all of this, uh, they have it organized. I think it's 19 issues or so, uh, the Death Metal series, and they have everything seemingly in the in the correct in the correct order. And even the ones that I thought would be would be more critical, like the Trinity. Trinity Crisis or Trinity War, whatever it's called, that Snyder Road, I think Francis Manipal did the art. That's where Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman venture into the dark multiverse to these crises that are still happening there to try to capture or redirect the anti-crisis or the, the crisis energy. Um, you know, even that, you know, it, I enjoyed it, but if you had skipped it, you got everything you needed in issue four of Death Metal or whatever. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you on that front for sure. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Well, and in terms of volume as well, I mean, that the last 52, which was, I think, the last uh, tie-in issue before Death Metal number seven, is 80 pages long. You know, the, the page counts vary wildly from, 
you know, the, from the main series into the tie-in material. And one of the problems that I always ran into as a retailer, when, when the companies would put out these big crossover events, you inevitably get a, at least a few people who just say, put me down for everything because they don't want to miss any critical components of the story, right? They think that, well, if it's on the little brochure that, that they sent to all the comic shops, those are essential chapters that you need to read. And, you know, our responsibility as retailers is to say, no, here, here's where you can, you know, if you like this character, read this tie-in, you know, you'll get the most out of it if you do that. Uh, this side of things, it doesn't really conform to the stuff you normally check in with. So you could probably push it to the side. None of that stuff is going to be super essential to what's going on. That's how it was, you know, at least for final crisis and for infinite crisis and, uh, you know, even secret invasion, although that was kind of a sprawling event too. But, uh, when it comes to events like metal and death metal, it would have been very difficult for me as a retailer to parse out exactly what's important and where it's important because like you said, the writer of the main series is involved in some of these things that aren't necessarily super important to the core narrative. So how do you guide someone in good faith to try and get the things that they actually need to get the most utility out of the story? It's, I don't want to say it's deceptive because I don't think it necessarily is deceptive but it does make it more difficult to follow, uh, especially for people whose job it is to guide customers through to find what they need from the story. Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, I identify with a lot of that. I mean, it's been, a, it's been quite a few years now since I was behind the counter, but no, I mean, I can, <clears throat> I can imagine what, <laughs> what this would have been like to try to, to oh, try to help navigate yeah. people through it. Going back to the doomsday clock of it all. So Again, I think it's fair to I think it's more than fair to have this conversation because of how how close in time all of these events were. I mean, and we talked last time about how again, Doomsday Clock was vastly delayed. It ended up taking just over two years for what was originally intended to be a one year story. Uh, and clearly a lot of shifts going on at DC in, in terms of their personnel and the direction. And I, I think there were a lot of factors kind of at play here. But we know when it comes to to Doomsday Clock in particular, uh, I, I guess I get, I agree with what you were saying before that they do. I think they do ultimately have different different aims, and Death Metals is certainly grander. I mean, and just to sort of illustrate this for people, like, what exactly do you mean? I feel like with with Death Metal, and Snyder talked about this in interviews too, but it's there in, in the in the work this idea of memories being restored, right? This idea, and he, he talked about this in an interview. He's not saying that Superman remembers being Red Sun, right? Red Sun was always an Elseworld story. But the idea is that any anything that had happened within the DC universe, even if the DC, even if that story previously had been retconned or, or, or you know, undone by a crisis event, like that's now part of, this history that the characters share. And as, as a further example, when we're in the Justice League run, there's a portion of the story where uh, the team, ha they have the World Forger on their side, which I thought was a nice touch in Sixth uh, Dimension, where he starts off as this antagonist, and that typically goes one way, but the League is like, well, work with us. Like, that's the one thing that Perpetua hasn't counted on. Like, work with us, join the Justice League, right? And then they seek to enlist the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor, right? I thought that was cool. 
And when they find the monitor on, on Nil, right, they revisit this world from Final Crisis that we had spent time on, Superman Beyond and all of that. When, when the monitor sees Barry, he references Barry's death during the crisis. And Barry has some line about like, essentially, yeah, I kind of remember that. <laughs> like, like or, or an echo of that. And it's always been, I've been meaning to bring this up in like all of these episodes. Every time I'm done with an episode, I'm like, oh damn, I meant to bring up that. This is the thing, it's this weird thing with Crisis on Infinite Earths in particular, where characters memories of it and their understanding of it is is seems to be very limited like they know there was a battle seems like they know anti-monitor was the antagonist but they don't seem to really grasp exactly what was at stake or their lot like the the you know the, the full scale of their lives before that like there's this vagueness to their memory it's like oh yeah barry died in that crisis and that's kind of what they know so this idea in death metal by the end that they have this now this clarity right, about what's happened, I think that is a distinct feature to death metal. However, yes, and this is my problem, especially with how Doomsday Clock and, and death metal interact, is that even though there is a distinction and I recognize that, I feel like ultimately at their core, they are getting at the same basic idea of, especially with when we get to Doomsday Clock, right, at the end, this idea of the metaverse and the idea that every time the DC universe changes, right, this new world is created to preserve, to quote unquote, preserve every era of Superman, right? So when uh, Barry Allen arrives on the scene in 1956 and kicks off the Silver Age, Earth 2 is created to preserve the Golden Age Superman. Uh, by the end of Doomsday Clock, we've restored the pre-52 timeline, but now Earth-52 exists out there to preserve the new 52 era of Superman. And so I feel like it's, this is a lot to do with saying, hey, all of these versions of the characters that you've had, they're still out there to be explored, to tell stories with. It all matters. And I feel like the it's all matters piece is such a huge part of what Snyder is doing. Like all of these stories matter. And so, again, I feel like at their core, both of these stories are like kind of saying the same thing, just as, <laughs> I don't mean to belabor the point, I've been talking about it over the course of this event, but it's like Mark Wade and Grant Morrison gave us hyper time in the 90s. Like they yeah. gave us a way to just have all of this already, but that's, oh, by the way, we learn, we learn, <laughs> we learn in, in the Snyder's Justice League run that the World Forger, he made hyper time, by the way, he made it. Yeah. You made it again. If there were, if you ever had a question about how anything works in the DC universe, just read these stories because you, you know, yeah. you have no questions by the time you're done. So we've, so we've had this, but anyway, within a, within these a span of these couple of years, we have these two stories. Like I feel like saying the same thing, and uh, mileage will vary. People will disagree. Again, for me, Doomsday Clock did it in a more, in a more elegant way that look, bias is showing, but it was about Superman at his core. <laughs> so that counts for yeah. a lot. And again, I think it was grounded in, in more emotion. And so again, this is less of a knock on Snyder himself and more on DC for, I think, having these kind of, not contradictory, but, but overlapping yet not syncing up events. I feel like this was a misstep on their part. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because the idea of everything counting that of course was the core conceit of Grant Morrison's Batman run going into that first issue. 
the idea was that, that that Morrison spoke about was that everything that has been published in Batman's publication history has happened over the course of one man's extraordinary life. I think paraphrasing, but that's basically what Morrison said. And uh, so what Snyder is doing, I mean, if, if there are people who think that he's something of a Morrison revivalist, that's not taking any ammunition out of that argument. He is literalizing the core conceit that defined Grant Morrison's Batman run and, and kind of canonizing it within the DC universe. Now, is that bad? No, I don't think that that's bad. I mean, if anything, Morrison's run proved that it just expands the tapestry on which you can tell stories with these characters and you can go to really unexpected places. But when I go back and when, when I say that Grant Morrison is my favorite comic book writer, one of the reasons that I always have said that is because when you read a Grant Morrison comic book, unless you're psychic, it's virtually impossible to predict how a story is going to play out. That being said, going from the beginning of death metal to the end of death metal, I certainly couldn't have predicted how this is going to go, but there is a core difference in that Morrison has always given service, even with a lot of the uh, expository information that could be tiring for some readers Morrison always prioritized the emotional intent of the stories that he was telling and always understands the cores of the characters being written in the stories. You know, if you want to go to new X-Men, Scott Summers is like Scott Summers. Wolverine is like Wolverine. You go to JLA. I mean, a lot of people believe that the, like the, the relationship between Kyle Rayner and Wally West, you know, that was defined by Morrison and JLA. Or, you know, Batman, the Joker, I think, is one of the best characters uh, when in the hands of Grant Morrison. But uh, the emotional side of death metal was not as much of a priority until the end, at least I felt, uh, in comparison with, uh, with a, a quote-unquote, even though you really can't ever apply this adjective to it, typical Grant Morrison story, you know. The emotional component of it is so key and critical. Uh, consistency, whether you want to talk about artistic consistency as in the artwork itself or in the ideas being presented over the course of a story are also critical to it. Uh, death Metal was generally pretty consistent. And I think Greg Capullo being involved in the main series, at least up until the very ending moments, uh, definitely helps with that. But again, you know, it just goes back to that idea of plot swallowing character, because where do we get the emotions from? We get them from the characters. We don't have it without the characters. You can tell this impossibly cosmic wide scale story. And if you don't have people with beating hearts at the center of it, it's just not going to punch you in the face as hard as I think even just the narrow components of Superman Beyond do or the end of Doomsday Clock does, or the end of Infinite Crisis does. You know, These are the kinds of stories that reach the heights of the DC universe, bring all the characters together, ideally because they want to stir in us why we love them in the first place. And I didn't feel that in, certainly in metal, uh, until probably the end of it. In death metal, 
it came a little bit sooner, thankfully, but it wasn't as much of a, of a, it didn't have as much or as prominent a role as I would have preferred. Beautifully. That's beautifully said, beautifully said. And this is maybe more of a question for off mic, but I think it is, it's relevant to what we're talking about here. And I, I love the way you put it as far as, uh, you know, canonizing, right. Aspects, uh, you know, of, of Morrison's ideas. I absolutely love Morrison's take on the Joker in that Batman run. <clears throat> this idea that the Joker changes over time, sheds his skin and evolves and plagues Batman in different ways. It's such a, it's a, a, to me, a perfect way of, of sort of encapsulating or reconciling all these different versions of the Joker that we've had over the years. He's changing, right? He changes. Wasn't it fun when he just decided to stop killing people for a few months and, and did a bunch of zany pranks and it's like, Hey, there's, there's silver age Joker. Yeah. That, and it's, it, to me, it works. It's so, it's very elegant. And then you have Jeff Johns come along with three Jokers and look, it's an intriguing read. The art is gore. I mean, I absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but there's something that I've always bumped up against that where it's like we have what I feel like is a, a wholly satisfying explanation for the changes in the Joker thematically. And then you have John's come along. And he's like, no, hey, no, no. There's just three of them. It's like, I don't, how is that better? How is that better? I feel like that takes away. I feel like that takes away something. And that leads to the other big problem that I had. The other, there are many, but, but with, with death metal in that double page spread, by the way, the number of times that I scrolled on my iPad as I was reading these events and I saw a double page info dump of DC cosmology, <laughs> it was, it was just, um, you know, to echo something that Superboy Prime said, <laughs> There was a point, and I got past it because the world building subsided slightly as we got deeper into this, but through metal and the beginning part of the reading for this, there was a stretch there where I was experiencing exactly what Superboy Prime was talking about, where I wasn't caring, and I hate that. It's one thing if I'm like, oh, I don't agree with this, or this could have been done differently, whatever. I'm okay because I'm still engaged. There was a point for a little while there where I just felt like I don't, I don't care. I don't care. You're just throwing so much stuff at me. Anyway, but in that double page spread with Wally explaining how crises work to Diana, that there are these two poles, there's crisis, there's this connective energy, all this stuff. He talks about how uh, Perpetua, for all this time that she's been trapped in the source wall, has been whispering in the ears of those who have instigated crises in the past. And we see Parallax and we see Darkseid from Final Crisis. And we see, I don't know if we see Alexander Luther or Superboy Prime, but like the past crises are represented there. And this notion that she's been subtly influencing them. Now, I had, I had a big problem with this. And this goes back to what I was saying before about over-explaining and drawing lines where we don't need lines. And I feel like, your, your, the counter argument, fair enough, could be, hey, you're taking this too literally, right? It, you know, it's just more, there are these forces at play in the universe. But the way it's laid out there, it's pretty explicit. And for me, the idea that to any extent these characters, it's like, going back to, uh, you know, near and dear to us, Infinite Crisis, it's like Superboy Prime was already being influenced by Alexander Luther. We don't need, like, we don't need another force. And whether it was, 
you know, again, however literal or figurative you want to play it, any level of influence being exerted on these on these characters to sort of say, hey, this is why, this is why Parallax initiated Zero Hour. This is why Dark Side. It's like, no, no, no. Like they did what they did because that's who they are and that's what they do. And so that to me was a, fu- and this is where I say, I feel like this is a fundamental disagreement. Uh, I respect Scott Snyder. If I ever <laughs> meet him, I'd be you know, happy to shake his hand, but it's like, I, I have a fundamental disagreement with this. Yeah. Well, and I can attest to Scott Snyder being an extraordinarily nice person to meet. I've met him at a few conventions, uh, always very giving with his time and, uh, and, and certainly, uh, also a fan, you know, enthusiastic about things that you might share with him at a convention, but no, I agree with you. I mean, consider, and maybe this is hyperbolic language. I don't know, but consider all of the other characters that that single factoid removes agency from dark side, Alexander Luther parallax. I mean, we've, we've learned so much about parallax over the years, especially, you know, once John's got a hold of, of the green lantern, uh, sub franchise and, you know, there was already like quite a lot of good, solid understanding of what. It, so, but then you know that just throws like another thing in. So, how long has Perpetua been? Has, has Perpetua been in the ear of the Parallax entity for eternity, or has she just been in the ear of Parallax when attached to Hal Jordan, or has she been slowly sort of in? Did she make Hal Jordan uh, susceptible? to the possession by parallax it's it's just it's too much so then another thing is too in certain situations if the heroes are going through uh, uh you know obviously perpetua meets her fate in this story but presuming she didn't in some future event could they not just trace the cause of whatever crisis they're battling to her and i mean it's like a reverse deus ex machina, although we should talk about deus ex machina once we get to the end of the story. But it's just like that effort to explain everything and to have a puppet master actually retroactively simplifies the stories uh, that we've already read. And I don't know how you could necessarily think that's a good thing for the and look i'm not part of your you killed my childhood crowd or anything like it but you know the retcon if how are you forced to read those old stories now when you revisit them oh well dark side didn't really just want anti-life he he was influenced by perpetual what that's like dr doom crying in that issue of amazing spider-man you know it's 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 just, it doesn't fit. Yeah. And, and I, I feel like if the whole, if the whole thrust of this is everything matters, I feel like this undermines that because I feel like it takes, it definitely takes away. And I mean, look, Hal Jordan is a perfect example to illustrate our point here because it's like, this guy's already being influenced by parallax as we've learned. It's like, now you're telling me that even parallax, the parallax entity is being influenced by perpetual. It's like, come on. And all like, depending on what lens you look at this, like we're looking at this or I'm looking at this, like from a Superman perspective, what, what little there is here, 
he has, you know, when we catch up with him in the, the death metal, uh, you know, hellscape, he's got the long hair. He's been imprisoned on Apocalypse. Uh, he's been bombarded with every different variation of kryptonite uh, imaginable uh, as well as anti-life. So he's, he's really, uh, you know, he's, he's really on the ropes there. But, uh, but like if you're looking at this as a Hal Jordan fan, I don't know how you feel. You know, how you feel about this. You probably have probably have strong feelings about the the parallax of it all. Uh, but then you add add this on top of it. It's like at what point are we just like losing sight of the character, right? I mean, because like now yeah. we're, now it's retcon upon retcon, and I don't mean to dwell on this, but literally parallax is one of the characters in that double page spread, and so I really fixated on that because when you read Zero Hour the first time, Hal Jordan had a fundamental disagreement with the Guardians. Right, he wanted to he wanted to save Co City, and they refused, and he rebelled, and he now has decided I'm going to remake everything. I'm going to fix it. It'll be better. And that there, I think there's an argument to be made. That's a that's a compelling that's a compelling turn for the character as divisive as it was at the time. Then later you find out, okay, he wasn't in full control. Right, there was this parallax entity corrupting him, and I think. You know, we maybe it's debatable. You know, was he? You know, is he fully possessed? Was he just being influenced? All right, but now on top of that, you have this other force. So again, it really it bums me out. With going back to Snyder, it's funny. I said we were I was driving in the car the other day with my wife, and I was saying to her, I was like, you know, because it was right after I had done the metal recording, and I was like, man, like I feel kind of bad. I'm like, you know, I don't. It doesn't bother me so much. You know, we always keep it polite, right, and respectful, and and, and all of that. Um, but it's, but I have an easier time kind of taking down when we covered Superman year one by Frank Miller. I really did not care for that. And at no point did I worry like, oh, you know, if, if Frank Miller ever heard this, he'd feel bad because there's such a, such a removal in, in, in terms of, of, uh, you know, generations apart. He's this larger than life figure and he feels more like quote unquote fair game, right? Where I'm like, it's fine. He can, yeah. you know, he can take it with Scott Snyder where I don't know his exact age, but we, we are relative contemporaries. And, you know, he, like one of the comic shops that I featured in my documentary film, my comic shop country poster over my shoulder there, he, he and Tom King just appeared, uh, at their 30th anniversary, uh, convention event that they did, uh, which was really cool in New Jersey. That's awesome. Very, very yeah. cool. It's like, I might cross paths with him at some point. <laughs> it's like, and so there's this part of me that I, I, and it's not that I'm pulling my punches, I'm still being honest, but I, I, I you know, there is kind of that aspect where maybe it is the sort of the contemporary aspect where I just sort of feel like, I, you know, I, I, it, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to <laughs> come across as like so overly critical, I guess. Well, no, I mean, look, I think it's prudent to point out as well that we should remember that death metal is the end of Snyder's DC output, right? I mean, compare it with the beginning of his DC output, uh, the, the, the Black Mirror in particular. Uh, that was a, was a career-making story. It made everybody turn their head and pay attention. And then more people paid attention when his name was on Batman number one, the first time we'd seen Batman number one since 1940. Like, it's a big deal. And naturally, I think there is going to be an energy there. And I don't think that he necessarily lost energy, but he did end up doing so much over the course of his time at DC, particularly just pouring an idea after idea into Justice League, that I feel like it's plausible that he may have felt the way I need to go out is by going as big as I possibly can. And, you know, he certainly did that. 
And I, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the character moments in here that do stand out. You know, I was genuinely surprised it didn't, I wasn't spoiled ahead of time. And since I finally finished reading this, this series for, for this discussion, I was genuinely surprised when Batman says I'm dead. Yeah. You know, and it, we didn't see that of course. And, and I, it was only telegraphed lightly in a few places. Like someone touched him earlier in the story and said, you're cold as ice. You need to rest. And they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. But, um, you know, that was a surprising moment and it did end up providing, at least for me, a sense of coming up against the end. Um, I don't know how much or as little, uh, as little or as maybe you're a huge gamer. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, okay. So there's a game, uh, that I actually think is the best example of a prequel ever. It's like the construct of the prequel itself is defined by Red Dead Redemption 2 is a, a incredibly emotional experience. There's a song that recurs through that game that sort of punctuates the more emotional moments of the main character's life. And the lyrics are, may I stand unshaken amid the crash of worlds. And in those moments, I, I started to hear that song play in my head because you are getting the sense it's written authentically in a way that everybody feels like this is the end. And some of those moments at the very end of the story where Wonder Woman or Sergeant Rock is narrating the, the final moments of the final battle between Wonder Woman and the Darkest Night and saying that's the moment when you push through and you fight through even without uh, you know, the possibility of victory or even recognition, you push through. And that's when I started to, to, to feel it. And when I started to feel like the legwork that went into getting to this moment was starting to pay off it was maybe diminished a little bit by the end. And we can talk about that, but still it was a moment that did feel real to me, even though I've read, you know, a thousand of these events before they all feel, but I do love those instances where we do get to sort of quiet down check in with how these people are feeling before the final battles. But like in final crisis, there's a great one shot called DC universe last will and Testament written by Brad Meltzer that did the same thing. And is one of the things that I really do love about the, all the stuff in final crisis that was not written by Grant Morrison. And we got some of that in last stories of the DC universe, which is a one shot associated with death metal that did have some cool stuff. I loved a moment in there between Hal Jordan and Sinestro, for instance, uh, and we got to see some cool moments with Green Arrow and Black Canary. There's a nice uh, ending Superman story in there written by Mark Wade. Um, but that's when this story to me was the strongest, when we can emotionally understand what they're fighting through and uh, and the reinforcing the the selflessness that you have to have if you're going to be a hero making progress in against an enemy like the darkest night. Yeah. I mean the, uh, I, I, I did enjoy that Mark Wade, uh, short story, uh, you know, where Superman uses elements of the time sphere and Kryptonian technology to, uh, essentially give himself an extra hour. Right. So he, he ends up being in multiple places at once, you know, long story short, uh, as, as he's helping and instilling hope across the world while still also being able to spend time with Lois and John. So like, that was cool. Uh, in, I think it's death metal itself. He has a reunion with Lois on the battlefield and, 
I don't know. Now I'm getting nitpicky, but you know, he, it's a very beautiful <laughs> sentiment that he expresses to Lois where he's like, thank you for, for our life and for our son and for being my world or some version of that. And she's like, thanks for being the best lead a, a reporter could ever ask for. And it's like, all right. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I, I, I don't know what, you know, if, if we were trying to kind of undercut, undercut the, 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 the drama of it, I don't know. And kind of on that note too, where uh, I feel like, even at the very beginning of Death Metal, there's a caption that says, you know, Themyscira, the DCU, yes, the real one, right? There are a lot of kind of like cheeky moments like that and captions and editor's notes where, you know, they're kind of, I guess, kind of like poking fun at this, at this, the thing that we all do uh, as comics fans. Like, okay, where, how does this fit in? What does this mean? It bothered me a little bit. <laughs> it bothered me a little bit because you're, you're, I feel like the irreverence of those little bits, uh, I, I feel like that's not, it, it's it's kind of unjustified given what you are asking everybody to learn and buy into with the rest of this story. It's like, don't give me double page spread after double page spread about crisis anvils and omniverse control rooms and then make fun of me for wondering if we're on the real DC universe. It's like, F off with that. I like that really annoyed me. I, you know, it's like if this had been a different kind of story where it wasn't all about this world building, fine, we can have some fun with it. But it's like, don't, don't ask me to do the amount of homework that you're asking me to do and then make fun of me for doing it. I like, <laughs> maybe I'm being overly sensitive, but I, after a while, and, and not that it's there's so many instances, but there were enough where I just felt as if, okay, cool it, <laughs> cool it with that. <laughs> I mean, the, the cheekiness seems like my guess is that it was their attempt to create sort of a hallmark. Like we're going to tell these big stories, but we're also going to have a little bit of fun with it and wink at the camera where necessary. But I mean, you know, better than anybody right now, because you've absorbed these crises back to back to back. I mean, I don't blame you for feeling the way that you do. These stories, generally speaking, are pretty heavy, especially, most especially, if you're invested in these characters. Like they're being put through things and in their in the hands of the best creators, like it's it's excruciating to to see and to read and to feel and to experience along with them. And then uh, you know, maybe some tonal inconsistency. I get what they were going for, but uh, yeah. Also for me, uh, swing and a miss. I, we have to talk about Lex Luthor. It, now you mentioned, you used Dr. Doom as an example from that, uh, that nine 11 amazing Spider-Man issue. I remember that well. And I remember the reaction to that moment of him crying. Uh, but it made me think of another Dr. Doom moment. So I've, you know, my heart is with DC. I've only ever read one fantastic four run, but it was the Mark Wade, Mike Waringo run. And I, I, I love it. I still hold it up as one of my favorite runs of anything. But there was that uh, unthinkable arc with Dr. Doom uh, during that run where he embraced magic. And even though I didn't have a background in the character of Dr. Doom, like I recognized, oh, like this is this is a big shift for the character, right? That he is is now taking this different path, right? And he recounts his history. I mean, it's been years since I read it, but you know, he recounts his history and you think it's going one way where he's expressing regrets and you think it's about, oh, I took the wrong turn. And it's like, yeah, he feels like he did, but it wasn't that he should have gone down a better path. He just feels like he should have turned to magic instead of science uh, <laughs> to achieve his evil aims. You know, maybe on a similar uh, similar note here, you know, this idea of Lex Luthor 
bowing before Perpetua, uh, dying for her, being reborn, merging with Martian Manhunter, his DNA, to become this apex predator. You know, he eventually comes around uh, and 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 in the end aids the our, our characters. He he obtains the death medal uh, with the help of Lobo that allows Diana to <clears throat> return to the World Forge and she uses her lasso uh, to become this metal metal being. Anyway, uh, going back to the to the Lex of it specifically, uh, I, I mean, did did this did this track for you? with any version of Lex that you, you know, you know, I didn't really think of it in terms like that as much as I just felt like this isn't my Lex, you know, I didn't necessarily feel like it was, uh, invalid, although you could definitely argue it is incongruent with, uh, with a great portion of, of Lex Luthor stories but I don't know if Lex was necessary to slot into that part. You know, maybe it could have been just a detail as simple as we need a bald guy because this is going to be Martian Manhunter by the end of this story. So just make him a bald guy. But I mean, you know, Martian Manhunter is a shapeshifter. So maybe not. But um, no, I mean, the most compelling Lex Luthor stories, again, you know, I think it gets back to that question. We talked about it before of stakes because you know invoking such high stakes uh beyond the comprehension arguably of someone even as vastly intelligent as lex luther uh just doesn't feel like the best use of the character i mean it's more isolated to sixth dimension and uh and and the justice do more than it is to death metal itself but no, I mean this is a long way of saying <laughs> that it does not necessarily align with with the most value that I extract from the Lex Luthor character as an antagonist for the world's most powerful being. You know, it's just it he wasn't necessary to play that part. There arguably could have been more appropriate people. Maybe a new god would have kind of made more sense, but Lex himself I mean, you and I read uh, Black Ring, and even when encountered, when when encountering death itself, Lex thinks in very small, self-interested terms. It's one of the things that's so frustrating be, as a as a fan. You know, like if you're rooting for him to maybe make some sort of massive self-realization, he just seems utterly incapable of thinking beyond what he can acquire and what things cost. So slotting him in here, I get it. It brings it up to sort of an all-star level, so to speak. Not all-star Superman, all-star baseball level, so to speak. But um, yeah, it just it doesn't align with the guy I know. I'm glad you brought that up. So for audience, if you don't remember, if you haven't listened to it, Chris came on a while back. We did an episode on uh, the Camelot Falls arc. Uh, by uh, Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco, as well as the Black Ring storyline. This was pre-New 50, 52 uh, by Paul Cornell and Pete Woods. And I was, I'm glad you, I had forgotten it in this in this moment, but I was thinking about it as I was reading and I was, I was like, oh, I'm so glad Chris is on for this. Because like we, you know, we talked about that story, the Black Ring, where, you know, he had 
uh, he had experienced the, uh, the the orange lantern power right in Blackest Night, and then he was on this quest for power. The power aspect, I totally get. The bending a knee to someone else to get it uh, really, really did not line up with anything. And it's like the story acknowledges that, but it doesn't solve the problem for me, right? Like, like Snyder has Superman say, like, I've known Lex, you know, like, like Lex, Lex, this isn't you at one point. And, and in another instance, something like, you know, I've, I've known Lex, he's always been about just believing in himself, but now he's found faith. I mean, I, I don't know this. I, I mean, I, I guess I can respect the idea that, okay, Lex is like Dr. Doom in that Mark Wade story. It's like, he is choosing a different path. Like the guy who only ever put stock in himself is now believing in some something else, something bigger than himself. And that's what's changed the course of things. I, I, I guess I can, but I, I cannot get on board. And, you know, we've, I did a whole like five episode swing of episodes a while back looking at how Lex has evolved over the years. And it's funny because I purposely left off this because I knew this was just, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't just kind of dip into this. It was its own thing. And, I'm glad I did it because I mean I like <laughs> it's part of the character's history, but I really I, I really struggle with reconciling this with any version of Lex that I know. Look, I th- I think uh, the the point is generally well taken, just in the sense that Lex is I feel like a, a microcosm of something that this story does broadly, in that it picks characters for certain roles that maybe don't necessarily jive all that much, but they serve a particular purpose in the story that's being told. So, you know, in that respect, it's just, you know, it's, it's far more detectable and in that sense, uh, discernible when it's a high profile character like Lex Luthor, who has such a legacy and such an established sense of, of who he is and the function that, he has served in the DC universe since John Byrne turned him into a businessman, arguably. Uh, I mean, you can't toss that away. I mean, one of the things that's so critical and I think uh, important about canon as a as a as a uh, as an idea generally is that it is a validation of the creators that came before the incumbent creator. Right, it's an it's an acknowledgement. It's an inherent acknowledgement of uh, the the work in totality. Kind of the point of death metal, arguably. Canon itself is an acknowledgement of everyone that came before you and all of the minds and the creations that led to the moment where you get to play with those toys in the toy box. And uh, you know, deep hard deviations one way or another there's instances where they can make perfect sense or there's instances where you could tell that they are conveniently serving a particular moment in the story that you're absorbing. And I feel like that's sort of what, where Lex Luthor lies here. I will say, cause and not to psychoanalyze Lex Luthor, but if there's any understanding that I can try to grab onto, you know, when Lex talks about what people were supposed to be, these apex predators, again, in this prior multiverse, this human Martian hybrid um, that was all about the self and and the individual needs and everything and the power that they wield and that Lex comes to wield when he absorbs Martian Manhunter. Uh, you know, 
knowing the Lex that we do, right, who's lived in this world where people look to the sky, to this other being with all of these powers, right? And for as much as Lex has amassed in terms of, of, of human achievement, right, he doesn't have that, right? He doesn't have that power. The idea, I mean, and, and to, I, I don't know that this is even explicitly said, but to whatever extent his choices are, are kind of fueled by that, it's like, well, I, sh- I sh- we should have, the humans, my, my, myself in particular, Lex, like should have been the kind of being, right, who wouldn't, who wouldn't look to a Superman, right? Like we could stand toe to toe with Superman. So maybe that, if anything, I could sort of say, okay, I understand. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, I'm glad he ultimately kind of saw, saw the light, but yeah, that was, it was, it was really tough to see him in that role. I also want to ask you, so when we had uh, Grant Richter from the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast for Metal, he he brought this up, and I think it's more uh, prevalent in this part that we read here. The, And I don't think Snyder has ever commented on this, as far as I know, but the pretty apparent political allusions that are made in this story when there's all this business about sort of, uh, you know, Lex as the spokesperson for doom, right, battling for the soul of the people in the DC universe I mean, I didn't read any of the Year of the Villain uh, stories, so maybe there's more heat, more there. In this, you don't really see so much in terms of, or barely anything, as far as the people, like how the people are reacting and what the people are doing. Uh, we're kind of more just told about it, but there's a, a, a bit in particular that really seems to, I think, give credence to this to this idea that Snyder was playing on the 2016 election and, and all of that. But let's see. This is after, you know, kind of the, that doom sigil has, has uh, appeared on the earth. And, and, and we're at that point in the story where Superman says about Lex, now he's something else. He fights with something far more dangerous than any weapon or dark force. He fights with faith, faith in the evil in people, faith in a selfish, cruel nature. And this is why we've lost standing at that altar with my friends, standing with you. We see it now. We lost him because we fought as though he was the old Lex. We took for granted that people would see him for a false hero, see him as the egomaniac he always was. We fought him as he used to fight us. We didn't fight him by enlisting everyone, by believing in them. We hid the truth from them. We tried to win them over. We tried to win for them, not win them over. And whether it's here or somewhere else, Batman literally says we lost the vote. So I don't know. I just kind of curious what your reactions were, if that was something that you had in mind as you were reading this. Sort of. I mean, the thing that jumped out at me more immediately was that I've kind of read this before uh, and it seemed more potent and certainly uh, graspable when I read uh, the stories leading up to the election of Lex Luthor as president of the United States. Yep. Super. One of the, the underpinning ideas of that entire story was that it never occurred to Superman that people don't see Lex Luthor the way that he does. And underestimating the potential for people to lionize Lex Luthor led him to become the most powerful person, politically speaking, on the planet. So, you know, arguably a more relevant story now, but the sort of modern... Uh, evolution i think again we get back to scale uh muddying the waters when it comes to the the allegorical point that could be made uh you know it's its presence is good but and you know i don't think that it's necessarily fair to hold 
the idea that I've read this before against this story because in comics, I think there's a higher degree of probability that certain ideas have previously been explored, you know, outside of uh, Grant Morrison, at least for me generally. Um, but at the, at the same time too, when you do detect that an idea has been explored with these characters before you inherently, and uh, you know, maybe even against your, your, your will at times will compare the two. So what was the most potent exploration of an idea like that? For me, it was probably the election of Lex Luthor. Uh, but I fully accept and am happy that someone is going to read this story today and this will be that moment for them. Uh, what will they think if they decide to dig in the back issue boxes and go back and read the, the election of Lex Luthor? Maybe they'll be like, well, I read this before in a story that was published later and they won't end up deriving any meaning. I don't, I don't I feel like I'm going on a tangent. No, man, I'm with you. That's the thing, though. I get it. And that is my same reaction, too, right? Because in my mind, it's like, oh, well, you know, I... I read the president Lex story like that's if I want my version of that story, that's what I would read. And again, I, I don't think we see nearly enough here in the pages of, of what we read uh, where, where you really see enough of that effect on the people. Again, it's, it's more that we're told about it. So I think that that takes a little away from it. But again, you know, that passage that I read in other instances, I mean, it, it seems fairly clear that he was drawing on that, but I do think overall the larger, I feel like the larger impetus for all of this or the larger metaphor that we can find really, really pertains to mental health. Uh, and I, you know, sure. I, and I know, you know, Snyder has been vocal about, you know, his own mental health struggles and, and all of that and dealing with the anxiety. And uh, so I think that's, you know, that's far more prevalent And this, you know, reading all of this, it's like, I, I want to give Snyder a hug. Like, you know, like this idea that's so, that's so <laughs> prevalent through all of this, that we need to be connected. You know, we need to look at the big picture, not just focus on the self and the now, but the collective and the the big picture, you know, that's beautiful. And, you know, and, and, you know, your, your point is well taken, you know, going back to the timing of this, that this was, uh, I believe it was actually delayed by a month or so. It was going to come out, uh, what it was like May, 2020 or something. And they pushed it back a little bit, but this was like early pandemic. And even again, I was reading on the app, but they still had some of the like in-house ads. And the first thing that you see is the maintain social distance art with, uh, Batman and, and Damien, like stay six feet apart, stay healthy. So it's like, that's the period we were in. And it's like still dealing with all of the political upheaval, regardless of where you land on that, but a lot of the political upheaval and then the pandemic. And so, you know, all of, and, and couple that with, again, what Snyder has been vocal about with, you know, his, his own mental health. So it's like, I think you see all of that at play here and uh, you know, that, that certainly resonates, but what you and I keep getting at, right? Like, especially going back to the president Lex story and, you know, referencing the Morris and stuff. It's, I feel like that I know this cuts both ways and I don't really have a good answer on it, but I feel like this whole notion of battling for the soul of the people in the DC universe and, and again, even this kind of metaphor for depression or mental health issues, it's like, I feel like we did see this with Final Crisis. That's what anti-life was, right? It was this depressive state essentially where you, you, you lost your free will. Uh, so I feel like we saw a, ver a version of that and so where I say this cuts both ways is part of me feels like I'm being a cranky old man 
and also one who has now read all of these crisis events in a, or reread them in a short period of time. And so it's it's sort of highlighting, you know, the repetitive aspects and, and all of that. But then part of me says, well, that's kind of the point of these, right? It's, you look at all of these events, and I, I went back and forth on this because with, with Death Metal, by the time we get to the end, everything is restarted, right? And we get this, you know, infinite web of multiverses. And I'm saying to myself, oh man, we've seen you know, it with Crisis on Infinite Earths, it was restarted and we had the single universe and then an infinite crisis, it was restarted and we had new earth and then the rebirth of the, you know, the birth of the 52. Final crisis, reality was unmade and remade. It's like, we've seen this. But then I'm saying to myself, well, yeah, we see it over and over. That's maybe what's supposed to happen in a crisis event. But the, the, the other thing is that with you know, kind of where we are, our tenures as as Superman, or just as comics fans generally and having read all of these events, it's like, I don't know. On the one hand, it's tough because we read things in here and it, it just, again, it might feel repetitive or it might feel like, hey, we've seen a version of this already. So maybe our longevity as fans works against us. But then at the same time, I wonder for someone new reading this because it builds so much on what came before. And we, I, you and I can't answer this, I guess. I'd be curious to any audience member. I don't know, if metal or death metal were the first crisis events that you read, I don't know, would it feel really cool and exciting? And they reference stories that maybe you're not familiar with, but there's enough there that you understand or would you just feel lost? Like I genuinely wonder. I mean, if the reactions to the opening issues of Metal by my former podcast partners were any indication, they because they were new, they were they were fresh <laughs> comic book readers. At least when it came to that event, it was uh, it was a four hundred level class, and they were looking for a one hundred one. You know that that was that was very much the case. Um, yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and I, I agree. I don't think that either of us are necessarily equipped to answer it, but I also wonder how many new readers decided to jump aboard with something like death metal. You know, I mean, uh, this seemed like it was very much designed to be a culmination of everything that Snyder had worked on up to that point, um, but his name is such that it has extreme commercial viability, so it's quite possible that someone decided to jump with this and maybe they stuck with it from beginning to end. Um, it's, it's hard to say, but I think you and I would both agree that if we're going to try and bring a new reader on board, this is like the last story that you point someone to. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and you know, funny enough. So for our next episode, I'm going to have uh, Lord retail from Acme comics in North Carolina. And I'm, I'll, I'm going to ask him, I am curious uh, with, Honestly, with any of these events, but especially these recent ones with the metal stuff and then Dark Crisis, was he finding any any new people coming on board? You wouldn't necessarily think so, but at the same time, we like to think there's always new people, new people coming on, sure, or, yeah, you yeah. know, or maybe a Marvel. You know, even if you're not totally new to comics, but I don't know, like let's say you're a Marvel fan and there's something about something here that speaks to you, and and you say, oh, okay, I'll try this. You'd <laughs> be fascinated to know what the reaction was. Uh, so as we pass the two hour mark, there were actually a couple of things I liked. Uh, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not, I thought the idea, even though to me it was kind of ridiculous that the past crises were continuing to occur in the dark multiverse, as long as people remembered about them and they were generating this crisis energy that, uh, we find out Superboy prime is feeding or channeling to perpetua. And that's what our heroes try to redirect to the Mobius chair for Wally to use. Uh, and they actually ultimately succeed 
But the Batman, the Darkest Knight, uh, a former Batman who laughs, was smart enough to reprogram the Mobius chair to redirect the energy to him. But the idea that uh, they have to go back to past crises, I thought that was actually cool. It didn't go, it didn't take the path I expected it to. I guess I was expecting something more akin to uh, Avengers Endgame, where they're playing more <laughs> in that world. You didn't really get that because right away what we, what the characters and we learn is that uh, Perpetua slash The Darkest Night, at this point I've lost track of who, who did what exactly, but they've sent the actual original villains down there. Like the people in the dark multiverse in these crises, they're not, they're not, you know, dark multiverse shadows of those characters. Like they've sent Superboy Prime down there and, uh, Mobius, aka the Anti-Monitor, to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Darkseid to Final Crisis. So that changes the equation really quickly. But the idea of going back to the original crises, I thought was cool. I mean, and maybe if they had gone the endgame route, it would have felt too derivative. But that didn't stop them before. So part of me feels like we should have just done that. So, but I like that general idea. And I like there was actually a, a one Superman moment that I was like, yes, where Diana is talking to Superboy Prime. Uh, and you know, basically he's been promised if he helps, uh, the, which one was it at that point? Was it, was he was helping the, the, the darkest night. It was the darkest night that he had promised Superboy prime his own world. Right. And that's been his quest from the beginning. He wants to bring back his perfect world. And wonder woman is like, no, no, like, just think about it. Like we'll bring back everything that's, that's been before. And prime says something along the lines of, well, yeah, but then, you know, any of those worlds could attack us or something like that. It's like, it'd be, you know, it'd be like a shot in the dark. And Diana says, yeah, but isn't that what he is? Superman, he was a shot in the dark. And that sways Superboy Prime. And I thought that was, a be for a second there, I felt like I was back in Doomsday Clock, right? It's like a rocket arrives, the child is low. Like that shot in the dark, that Hail Mary pass across the stars, as I always like to call it. Uh, I thought that was a cool moment. Uh, so I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, chances are, uh, you're going to uh, elicit a, a pretty big emotional response if you try to appeal to the idea of Superman in a broad sense and what that means for the the foundation of the DC universe. Yeah, that that moment certainly stands out to me as well. Um, I also I, was it in the main series where Batman. And the reanimated corpse of the Batman who laughs were like having a Batman off. Like, well, I did this. Yeah, but you didn't think that I would have done this to counteract that. What are you thinking? Like, who are you talking to? Like myself. And it, it, that was a fun moment too. Like I, as someone who has not been particularly enamored with the character of the Batman who laughs and, uh, you know, with, with respect to his insane popularity since he was introduced, um, that was a moment where I thought, okay, I can see that because metal and death metal, even though death metal arguably, and I think generally speaking, it's easy to observe that wonder woman's the main character. Like they are both descended from Batman. They are descended from the iconography of Batman and uh, his importance in virtually every other kind of venue and universe that we've seen him in. But there weren't an abundance of real Batman moments over the course of the main story, I felt, until that one. And then what I mentioned before about where he actually does admit that he is dead. Uh, you know, the the unthinkable finally happened and caught up with Bruce Wayne. That uh, that says a lot about 
the 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 viscerality of what the heroes themselves are facing over the course of this story and uh and so i certainly appreciated that too um joker it was like very briefly i think in the sixth or seventh issue when uh when the big battle is going on and and the the tide is turned to the to the forces of evil again and the joker has his intestines hanging out i was like i'll be right with you let me just put myself back together (laughs) that was that was fun that's kind of that dark harder edged humor that i think uh snyder excellently explored in death of the family his his first story with the joker um so those moments were good too and you know where the story ends up leaving us with that sense of possibility with a sense of wonder uh that felt authentic to me it felt like it was the way that a crisis event should end honestly it did feel like maybe previous crisis endings on steroids which i think is exactly what it was going for I can't say I didn't feel like that at the end of the book. It, you know, in terms of what we know follows Infinite Frontier, I think the end of this lives up to that and it, and it earns that title. So, you know, credit there. Uh, jumping back just for a second to the, to the Justice Doom War, uh, the members of the different teams within the Justice League splinter off through time to try to find uh, fragments of the totality uh, and so we have a team in the past who encounters the Justice Society, and we're at the point in our continuity here where the Justice Society, uh, the 1940s version, has been erased from continuity. So uh, there's not that recognition there, but you see those, uh, you know, those those building blocks between them start to form again, especially between the Green Lanterns and the Flashes. Uh, and then in the future, we have our heroes uh, link up ultimately with uh, the the Justice Legion A from DC One Million, which that was cool. You know, that it, it, we continue to get really over the top stuff like, uh, you know, Brainiac 1 million and the monitor, anti monitor, and uh, Master Forger forming the Ultra Monitor. It's, you know, again, it feels like Power Rangers. And I love Power Rangers. I love it endlessly. <laughs> but at the same time, I, there's a place for that. But but anyway, you know, kind of the, the you know, the, the past and the future. Those team ups, I thought, were, I thought were cool. I mean, look, going back to the Doomsday Clock of it all, you know, that story accounts for how the Justice Society is back in mainline continuity. But I guess this story also gives you a path for how they're back in mainline continuity when the timeline is unknotted, as they like to say, right? The it's unknotted and the truth is revealed and all of history is restored. So, as I guess you can read either as your path back to the JSA. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up. My my choice of attire this evening is in reference to the fact that I do love the Justice Society of America. Yes, and I I cannot deny that losing the JSA, maybe that it like Johns ends up kind of pushing forward the idea that hey, if you felt like the heart of the DC universe was missing during the New Fifty Two, well, guess who was missing? It was the JSA. So going into death metal and certainly uh, the fact spoiler alert, I suppose that the final page of the story is the justice society of America did bring a sense of justice. That was a wonderful way to end things, especially considering if you are a JSA fan, you might've felt like you were kind of kicked to the curb or kicked to the side over the past several years. And it's only just recently that they finally got a book back in the hands of Jeff Johns. And so even those promises that were given to us in doomsday clock and in death metal are only just now over the past few months, 
finally being made good on. And it took Jeff Johns for that book to actually return. Like they didn't give it to, to uh, another member of the current guard of the DC universe. They went straight to him. Uh, so I think that that just says a lot about uh, the importance of the JSA to the DC universe itself and to those warm feelings that we have about the kind of place that it is and the kind of heroic community it has. You can't rip the heart of that out. And DC has finally decided to put it back in. I mean, how many times do we have to go through this? I, I mean, like yourself, I'm a, I'm a fellow <laughs> fan, and it was that 90s revival, uh, Jeff Johns, David Goyer, yeah. James Robinson, that made me such a fan. And then, yeah, to lose them with the New 52, it was, it was heartbreaking. And, you know, I'm glad that now they've returned, and hopefully we don't have to go through this again. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that aspect of it was, uh, was really cool. One last uh, Doomsday Clock uh, follow-up. So, you know, I guess what we learn in Death Metal is that the energy that Dr. Manhattan possesses is that kind of connective uh, anti-crisis energy that we that we learn about here. And that's what the quintessence imbues the Justice League with for this off-panel fight with Perpetua that they lose, right? So again, this, this whole, again, tying everything together, I, I appreciate the attempt. I did also like at the end of the Justice League run, at the end of the Justice Doom War, the note that it ends on, I mean, in fairness, it's a lead into another story, but just looking at it in and of itself, I mean, it ends, it's like the empire strikes back of this story. I mean, it ends on a really down note. They've lost the soul of their world to doom. People's hearts have turned away from justice towards doom. No matter how hard our heroes have justiced, uh, doom still prevailed. And, uh, you know, so sort of the, the, I don't know, whatever statement it's making about it, people... I don't want to say people suck sometimes, but like, you know, sometimes no matter what you do, right, you, 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 you can't break through. And, but the fact that the heroes were still charging into battle, that they were still willing to fight. And it was a fight that, again, I'm mixed on whether or not I think this was a good choice, but it's like whether or not we see it, it's like at the end of that run, like just that in a vacuum, that idea of like, Hey, we might not see what happens next, but like, they're still fighting. I, you know, I thought, I thought that was cool. And then the, I guess the final, when we get to the end of all of this and sort of the final test before Diane, and I, I agree with you. I know it's so deep in the episode that we actually said it, but yeah, I mean, it, it is a Wonder Woman story. It really is, uh, just, as metal was a Batman story, that this is a, a Diana story. And I, I like, I guess what did resonate was uh, in her, you know, she's imbued now with the, you know, with the metal from the World Forge and her lasso, right? That is, you know, kind of, presented her in this new form and she's fighting the darkest night. And the other, uh, you know, mechanical piece of this is that Perpetua, who has now been defeated by the darkest night, Perpetua had been essentially keeping the, the hands, the celestial hands of the omniverse away, because if they caught wind of this and they came to this reality, they would unmake this and start over just as they had done the first time. Um, and so now with, Perpetua out of the way, the hands are coming, right? And the darkest night is planning to to destroy them. And, you know, Wonder Woman is standing be between him and, and, and that. And, you know, essentially he tempts her with this idea of like, well, I'll give you a world. I guess uh, similar to the deal he had offered Superboy Prime, like, you know, you can have a deal, you can start fresh. And her, you know, her kind of the commentary that we get via her, her captions, it, it, you know, seems to be making a statement about reboots 
and about something like the new 52, because she says something along the lines of, uh, you know, like a young, fresh world where we don't remember what came before. It's like, we've had that before, right? And so again, kind of the meta nature of this, where we're saying, no, we're not doing that again, right? We're getting to a point where no, everything has happened and we're opening everything back up and everyone's gonna remember what's happened before. Uh, so I, you know, again, that tracked, and I, I thought that the choice that that was there before her was a was a valid one, and uh, you know, her decision to defeat the Darkest Night ultimately carries the day when the hand or one of the hands uh, of the Omniverse appears in the guise of Golden Age Wonder Woman, and they have this face to face in front of an all white background, just like the bar. It was like the Barbie movie. Now that I think about it, like the end of the movie. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So cue up the Billie Eilish, you know, cut the metal, the death metal music and cue up the Billie Eilish. And they have this, you know, and they have this, this, this heart to heart where I guess under any other circumstance, the hands would have just scrapped it all. But Wonder Woman's actions had swayed them sufficiently that, again, they restore everything. I mean, what was your take on the ending? I liked it. Um, you know, crystallizing the point of everything uh, it, it did feel sufficiently authentic to me. I mean, arguably, uh, you could call it a deus ex machina, right? I mean, well, certain death is just flipped over by all, all powerful beings. But I think there is a critical component of the writing where they, uh, the hands explained that it was Wonder Woman's actions. Everything that we have experienced up until this moment uh, was needed to take place in order to get to the decisive moment between she and the darkest night. So it's less of a deus ex machina in that respect, but it, it, I guess it's just counts because of how powerful the hands are at the end of the day. That being said though, Diana is given a choice, uh, to choose a greater degree of vibrancy and truth in, in, in the final decision and the recognition that uh, that the hands seem to have for the choice that she made and the actions that she undertook, it, it was nearly a Superman moment in the sense that it is giving service to the Constitution and the importance to the foundation of the wider narrative construct that is the DC universe that Wonder Woman uniquely has, and she has it because she believes in truth, she's compassionate, but that doesn't negate power that she has. She just uses that power judiciously and is guided by the lights of truth and love when she executes it. And everything that happened in those final couple of pages on, on that white void did give service to those ideas for me. So, you know, uh, it's, it's hard not to love wonder woman as a DC comics fan, I think, and giving her uh, a moment that I think normally has generally been reserved for Superman was a good call. You're, you're right. You're right. I, again, as, as a, as the host of a Superman podcast, it's like, yeah, I would have been cool if it had been Superman, but no, I agree. I think, you know, look, if we're looking at, at the entire pantheon and we're looking at this Trinity, I think giving her, no, you know what I'm thinking about I'm processing what you're saying. Cause it's true. When we look at all these other crisis events that we've been looking at, it's again, usually Superman or a version of Superman, <laughs> right. Who, who, who kind of, you know, has that, has that decisive moment. 
or even Batman, right, shooting Darkseid in, in Final Crisis and, of course, being on that final page in the cave. Like, you know, one or both of them, right, and certainly Batman when we get into the metal of it all. Uh, but yeah, to give Wonder Woman that, I think was, I, I think that was a good call. And look, if the whole theme is truth, like everything that's happened will come to light, right? I, I think it tracks thematically. So no, I, I, I do, I agree. I think that was, uh, I think that was cool. Look, the idea of an omniverse uh, with infinite multiverses feels like a hat on a hat. It's like, I, I feel like, what are we, what are we doing at this point? But you know, what's so funny when we did our 52 episode. <laughs> Uh, the weekly series. And and that's where we learned that this new uh, multiverse of 52 Earths had been created after Infinite Crisis. I, I said in that episode, I was like, you know, I feel like DC really hasn't done enough with this idea of the multiverse in the modern era. Uh, and I said, I take it back. <laughs> I take, I take it back. Now that I've seen this, uh, I'll retract that statement. Uh, we had touched on Superboy Prime earlier. I like that he had this this heroic turn after everything he had been yeah. through. And I love the role that crypto plays in all of this. It's like you said before, it's like everyone is, I mean, rightfully so, uh, pretty disdainful of Superboy Prime after what he's done. But mm -hmm. this the dog, right, shows him kindness and, and goes to him. And uh, when he too is presented with this final temptation, right, uh, of being able to have his own own world to play with, you know, he, he rejects it and he fights back. And he is seemingly rewarded with being back in, on his prime earth where he's reading these adventures in the page of a comic. Did you take that as an afterlife or uh, an actual earth sort of thing? I took it as an actual earth as like a telegraph of what the final results of the stories were, were going to be. But one of the things that I found fascinating about prime's place in the story is that it doesn't negate any of the delusions that he had during infinite crisis or afterward, right? He believes he is doing the right thing. That's the difference between me and you. I've always wanted to do what was right and you don't. And it's like, yeah, that's in line. That is exactly what he has always believed and recognizes that still manages to recognize, I should say, that total destruction is total destruction and is in opposition to everything that you say you have been fighting for. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think that's uh, I think that's a great point. I also want to say that. Oh, while we're talking Prime, uh, you know, it, get, it things get so bad that the villains and the heroes are are working together. Uh, even you know, Cyborg Superman uh, and and other adversaries are are you know aligned. I mean, I guess I guess it tracks. The stakes are that high, but it was still a little jarring. I don't know. I, did it, did yeah. that bump you at all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I I have a hard time seeing. I mean, we already mentioned Lex, but. Uh, Hank Henshaw has a uniquely potent kind of hatred for Superman that arguably Lex doesn't even have. So yeah, that, that was a little surprising, but I do like the idea of everybody coming together, you know, the it's, but again, you know, it's sort of an idea that we got out of blackest night as well is that, Hey, you know, light, this is literally life versus death, you know? And in this case, it's literally existence versus nothingness. Um, similar ideas, but, you know, if they happen, you know, uh, I don't know, 11 years apart, maybe that's okay. You know, all things good. Fair enough. As we, I promise we are winding down, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I know I talked about how I, I, you know, really don't need all of these lines to be drawn. I will say, look, I, in fairness, we learn that there was a reason why the anti-monitor uh, initiated that original crisis on infinite earths, 
right? The idea that he was originally tasked with uh, keeping the boundaries between the multiverses clear, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly. And then after the Monitor rounded up Anti-Monitor and World Forger and they stopped Perpetua and the source erected the source wall, it rendered the Anti-Monitor's function moot, right? Because now there was this divider that uh, that appeared in every in every multiverse. So that's why he has this hatred. Because, uh, you know, going back to the original Crisis, which we reread not too long ago, I, you know, it's like Anti-Monitor, it's, it's fine. It's just fine. It's just kind of this force and this plot device rather than a real character. So this notion of, oh, hey, there was actually a little something more going on there. That was fine. That was fine to me. Again, getting to the point where people are whispering in other people's ears too far. But the the idea sure. that, oh, no, there was actually some bad blood between these two. Uh, you know, I was I was cool with that. The last, maybe the last question I have for you, and then if there's anything else you want to talk about, but uh, this is probably an unfair question because as we've talked about and as we've seen, right, any, any new story, any creator in a shared ongoing universe like we have here, they're always looking to see what's come before and building on what's come before. So this is kind of unfair, but these stories, and you know what, even though I'm a fan of it, I'm going to, I'll lump this in here too for fairness, like Doomsday Clock, something that so directly, you know, builds upon and imitates the style of Watchmen and, and, you know, these metal events that borrow so heavily from Morrison and these other crises, like, does it, do any of these, these recent stories that we're talking about in particular, do they, do they border on the line of fan fiction? I guess the counter argument is, like, that's all fan fiction, but, but I did, like, is, is, there, is there any feel to that or, or to put it a different way, do you see, do you see any kind of dividing line between these recent kind of crises, metal, doomsday clock, death metal versus maybe the more than ones like we came up with like infinite crisis and final crisis. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I feel like in terms of scale, obviously it's going bigger than any other crisis before this point had in that sense. I think it does have a, a, a lineage to the crises events that we have already absorbed. So in that sense, like it's, it's valid. It's arguably a logical conclusion. If you're thinking that everything is going to come in orders of magnitude, right? Um, You can't get bigger than the orders of magnitude that were established here. Uh, Although, you know, maybe you and I will read dark crisis at the same time and we'll be revisiting a perspective like that. I don't know, but you know, it's funny People know uh, that I am the, uh, well, I mean, well, a few people know that you brought up Discovery Debrief. That's my Star Trek podcast. And uh, I feel like there is relevant, there's multimedia relevance to this question because this generation of stewards of these franchises clearly have priorities of things that they would like to see or things that they feel they need to correct. Um, they don't get these jobs where they're in charge of the, the trajectory of these longstanding uh, superheroic or just media icons without having a degree of understanding and arguably, you know, f- fandom for these properties. Uh, st- there was a, a series on the air that went for three seasons, Star Trek Picard. It's the first time that we've seen Patrick Stewart play Captain Jean-Luc Picard, or in this case, Admiral Jean-Luc Picard, since 2002. Uh, The first two seasons were very narrowly focused on Jean-Luc Picard himself, absent the other characters that we had gone on journeys with. Uh, You know, the the crew of Star Trek The Next Generation. That's the show that Picard was 
involved in. So we went on those journeys with all of those crew members. Season three of Picard is wholly different from the first two. It is effectively a TNG reunion that brings everybody back. And the showrunner of that third season is a guy named Terry Metalis, who is a huge fan of the franchise, who's worked on it since at least 2005 in, in different capacities. Uh, there's a, there's like a cameo that he has in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise back in 2005. Um, and he's given a lot of interviews recently where he has talked about, well, uh, in the first Next Generation movie, the ship that we had spent seven years on on the show on the next generation was destroyed. One of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to, to pick up those toys that had been discarded and put them back on the shelf and give them the ending. I felt they deserve. And granted a lot of fans probably felt that way too, but uh, you know, data pr- played by Brent Spiner had previously died in other media data is back in, in Picard season three. It gives an, a, a send off that that crew arguably didn't have, but it also does in places evoke certain elements of fan fiction. But I do think that, you know, we look at this, we look at, uh, at death metal and some of the other creations that we're seeing at DC comics where creators are either near or in our generation. These are the things that these creators are prioritizing in multiple media. That's I'm so glad you drew that parallel. I, while while I'm I, I just never really got into Star Trek, but I appreciate the passion for it, and I have enough general knowledge. I know exactly you know what you're talking about, and that's something that I, I'm recognizing, and I have to come to terms with. And it's kind of this weird effect where, yeah, Jeff Johns was drawing on what Marv Wolfman had done in the original Crisis when he did Infinite Crisis. Grant Morrison was drawing on Jack Kirby's Fourth World for <laughs> Final Crisis, right? But I didn't grow up with those prior works. So I don't look at them through that lens. And to me, they feel, even though I recognize that they are building upon what's come before, they still feel fresh to me, right? And I hit them at a younger point in time and it's just a different experience. Whereas here, yeah, with with Scott Snyder in particular, this is a guy, again, I don't have exact his exact age, but it's like, yeah, he was coming up reading the same stories that we were. And now it's like, he has the opportunity to, to play with them so I can't begrudge him that. I guess the thing that's weird to me, but I guess maybe this is just the effect of fandom. It's like older fans who might've complained about the stories that we loved, right? It's like, but it, I, what's the weird aspect is you would think that stories we loved getting referenced or or revisited in the dark multiverse or whatever, like that would be, we would like that, but it's backfiring. It's having the opposite, maybe because we don't want those touched, right? Like they have kind of that special place, or we feel like they, they achieved their aims in a more effective way. So now seeing another story, try to do the same sort of thing. It's again, even look again with the political aspect of all of this, it's like, yeah, the whole, you know, pointing people towards doom or whatever, but it's like, no, but like we saw, <laughs> we saw like a, a more direct parallel to what we experienced in, in, in real life in the comics in a really cool way. So, so maybe it's that it's weird though. It's so weird. Yeah, and I mean, I think you even see uh, the, the the parallels in in other places too. You know, like um, Nick Spencer's Captain America comes to mind, where he actually the the world was convinced that he was a Hydra agent all along, but it ended up being a story about uh, confronting fascism, effectively. 
and uh and so these characters are uh, there's a rich tradition of using these characters to try and tell us stories about ourselves honestly that's when the stories resonate the most with me but uh the the approach seems to couple those kinds of narrative aims with that pre-existing passion that the creators clearly had and maybe the natural result is that it does feel like our generation's fan fiction because maybe uh, people like Terry Metalis and people like Scott Snyder were in those forums cutting their teeth on writing fan fiction. It's possible. I know. And because that's what it, you know, that's what it reads like. It's like, what if, you know, the anti-monitor and monitor were brothers and they had a third sibling and they lived in, you know, the sixth dimension and there's a crisis anvil and, there are these two two poles of opposing forces of energy and there's an omniverse within which exists infinite multiverses and a dark multiverse. And within the multiverse, we have the metaverse, which, you know, when we get to Flashpoint Beyond, you know, we get that chart uh, from Jeff Johns that like lays this out. So like another attempt now to sort of uh, reconcile all of it. I, I'll, I'll save this for the next episode, but I'll just say real quick, for a while, DC was building towards this 5G event where we were going to have this like century long timeline and characters were going to be their actual ages and they were going to be replaced by their successors. And when Dan DiDio departed the company, uh, those plans were jettisoned. But I think when you look at death metal, I think you see where that was heading. I think the, the germ of that is still here, right? Like this unknotted timeline, but you still don't have people again, appearing as the age that they like, they didn't, they didn't go all the way there but kind of unknotting right. the timeline and then this general generational aspect where, again, we didn't have characters being replaced per se, but we had, uh, you know, again, like John Kent is active as Superman alongside Clark as Superman and, you know, and, and on and on through the line. So I think they retained aspects of it. But that's another thing, too, when we talk about kind of, com you know, not even competing or conflicting, but just publishing objectives that were then abandoned. Like, I think this was building towards something that that then was, was not that. So I just wanted to mention that really quickly, but mm -hmm. is, so is there anything that we, uh, you know, whether big picture or individual moments, anything that we didn't talk about with this that you wanted to, uh, I just don't want people to come away thinking that I, uh, I, I don't enjoy this story. Like, I feel like it's easy to potentially glean that. Look, I'm always going to be down for uh, a crisis level event. You know, a, a crisis level event, generally speaking, considering the legacy going back to 1985, like they're memorable, they're fun. They put uh, characters that you wouldn't expect to combine into situations that uh, that seem novel. Uh, so, I'll, I'll always enjoy these kinds of stories when they come along, but that does not mean that they are all created equal. In fact, a fun postscript episode might be you doing a tier list of crisis events. Uh, if you feel equipped to do that, I think you would be arguably more equipped than a lot of other people in the moment if you wanted to do that. But, um, you know, there are some crisis events that just hit better than others, whether or not uh, timing, I think is a big part of it. Is this the right crisis, the right kind of story at the right time, considering where the characters are? Um, maybe not, but I can't argue with what it has led to in terms of bringing sort of new voices into the fold for these longstanding characters and, uh, and, and trying to forge new paths for them. 
in that respect i uh i I admire death metal for doing what it's done and i also like i alluded to before really admire its ambition and i do feel like it hits more than it misses which i didn't necessarily feel about metal so this is a fun reading experience but you do need to pedal to keep up with it you need to pedal harder to keep up with it arguably than something as final crisis which we used to think was dense but in comparison maybe not so much <laughs> i agree i agree with all that and would i go so far as to say i enjoyed this i don't think i could i enjoyed this more than metal but what i what i will say and i, I think this really is important I genuinely think that Snyder and Capullo, but Snyder in particular across his just metal justice league and, and death metal. I think he really achieved what he set out to whether that's what I wanted as a reader may that may or may not be the case, but in terms of having an objective and achieving it, I think he did it. And I will, I really, I, you know, I will give him props for that because it seems like, and whether you want to call it fan fiction or just creativity or whatever, whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on it, 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 it reads like someone who has read and loved and thought about these characters and concepts for a long time and had a lot of ideas. Like how wouldn't it, it reads like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this, or would it be cool if that? And he had the chance to do that and to tell this story in his way. And so I, in that sense, it's a success. So uh, you know, this, it's, well, this went long. They all, our episodes generally are long and these crisis ones in particular, but I, you know, I, I hopefully for our audience, even the ones who aren't like, familiar with death metal, you enjoyed this episode. I think we got it. I really enjoyed this. I actually found this very, I found it really interesting. I found it cathartic in a lot of ways. And I think it, we, I think we really got at some interesting ideas about all of this and how fitting is it that here we are discussing an event about events you know, we're, we're in an event, a podcast event, talking about a comic event. That's a commentary on other comic events. And we got to have this conversation about, uh, you know, again, just about these, it's where I feel like we're just, uh, we're in a, in a, in a, in a cycle here, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I got a lot out of this. I thank you so much for your time, both in reading and having this epically long conversation. Uh, I'm always happy when we can compare notes. Again, we've mentioned Discovery Debrief and Comic Binge. Uh, you know, is there anywhere in particular you want to direct folks to check those out? Uh, you can uh, check out uh, the Comic Binge is exclusively on YouTube, at least at the moment. Um, so be sure to check out our episodes every Tuesday. Usually, just live streaming affairs, 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I think our next one is Spider-Man centric, but we have done rundowns of Infinite Crisis. I actually designed a reading order for the panelists. Uh, for the for the pre-material and then the the different bobs and weaves to take in over the course of the main series and that was a fascinating set of discussions i think leading up to it we read omac project and uh what other minis did we read villains united ranthanagar uh, we 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 skipped villains united and ranthanagar but i made them uh read day the of uh day of vengeance yes thank you and uh so all of, and, and then up through countdown, of course, uh, my co-host Paul Herman actually thinks the best issues of Infinite Crisis are the Superman tie-in specifically, where where Kal El is batter, battling his Earth Two counterpart, and I, I can't really disagree with that. It's pretty solid. But um, 
we're going over 52 right now. So be sure to check out the comic binge. And then over on discovery debrief, we just recently concluded the second season of star Trek, strange new worlds. And we have episodes dedicated to all 10 of those. And uh, we're about to dive into the comedy animated series, lower decks. That's currently back on the air. So you can check that out wherever you get podcasts. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you audience. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. Next week, it is the grand finale of Red Skies. I'll be joined by Lord Retail from Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we will get into the last, for now, but I know it won't be the last one forever, the last for now (laughs) and most recent uh, crisis event, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earth. So make sure you come back for our 13th and final chapter in Red Skies. Until then, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.